Greetings, Blue Rose Task Force listeners. This is Agent L here, reporting from London. It's with a lovely cup of coffee that I sit here and contemplate the life of Laura Palmer, the experiences with which she has represented the many and the all. As Margaret Lanterman, a.k.a. the lady, has said, Laura is the one. And I know it's almost unquantifiable to express how powerful the story of Laura Palmer has been on the collective consciousness. And me personally, having watched Twin Peaks as a young woman, it was profound, it was unsettling, it was disturbing, but it resonated. And as I grew older and had more experiences in my life, it resonated with more depth. And unfortunately, with more realism in my own life. And um, it's a part of Twin Peaks which. I genuinely think might be the most important part of it. Um, it was a turning point, I feel, for David Lynch as a creator, um, which I don't think he, as I've said before, always gets it perfectly right. But I do think he has an interest in trauma, in psychological uh, disturbance, but also Laura was the one in in turning his gaze towards the experience of the feminine and the unfortunately all too common experience of of trauma and it's something that's very profound to me because I think in recent years post the me too movement um we have begun talking about sexual harassment, rape, abuse. Uh, we've said the words which are still hard to say. And it strikes me how ahead of its time Twin Peaks was in depicting this in an unflinching and empathetic way. Um, Fire Walk With Me, I believe, is a masterpiece as a result. I have listened to as much of Laura Palmer's diary as I could, but for my own healing, I felt it was too too resonant <laughs> to um, delve too deeply in it at this time. But I just wanted to send a message of love and support to John for his work on the podcast. Uh, my love and support for the Twins, P Twin Peaks community as a whole, and my appreciation for the text and all the wider texts that play into it. I know from reading about Laura Palmer's diary how perfectly uh, well it was done. I think it was important that it was written by a woman. Um, so I salute Jennifer Lynch in her work on that. And I 
wish for healing for the collective consciousness around this issue. And I believe that shining a light on it and depicting it in art, in media, in TV, in music, talking about it, and um, allowing the gaze to be turned on it is what will ultimately alchemize the hurt around this issue. Um, it's very interesting when you have so much love for a character that is not, in quotes, real. Um, but I do think Laura Palmer has become an iconic totem for many people. And um, I also uh, have so much respect for Cheryl Lee because I know that not only did her performance touch so many people, but it also, uh, in her work in uh, just, you know, uh, keeping the Twin Peaks community flame alive and talking to fans of the work has also been part of her life's journey and uh, I think she's a beautiful human and I think she really brought Laura Palmer's uh, story to life in such a way. Uh, so I look forward to delving deeper into Fire Walk With Me but I also um, hope you enjoy this diving into Laura Palmer's diary and her experiences and um, I hope it's not too triggering for some of you. If it is, maybe do like I do and take a step back and, and revisit it when it's less raw or it's the right time and i send you all so much love and just golden sunshine Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode or book at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and the wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the first of three Twin Peaks books published during its original run, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, written by Jennifer Lynch. I'm your host, John. All right, for some bureau business, we have a disclaimer this week. I know that um, Twin Peaks deals with a lot of really dark, heavy stuff most of the time, but this week it's even more concentrated than usual. Um, we're going to be discussing, because the book discusses, uh, issues of sexual abuse, violence, drug abuse, and addiction. Yeah, this book can this book can be a huge trigger for anybody who's dealt with any kind of this abuse. And, um, I, I can say for sure that, um, 
that my sometimes co-host El Holgate was actually planning on being back for this episode, but it ended up being too triggering for her too. So this is going to deal with a lot of sensitive material and I'm going to do my best with it. But if you're in a sensitive spot for this and, um, you know, just, just make sure you protect yourself before you start in on the secret diary and, um, you know, just, just, just take care of yourself. In the secret diary of Laura Palmer, we've got a lot. Through a series of diary entries over the course of Laura Palmer's life from the ages of 12 to 17, we learn about her interior life, the extent of her abuse, and how she attempts to cope with it all. At 12, Laura couldn't talk about what she was going through. She just wanted to stay away from bad things. At 13, she was still in pain, but was trying to take control of things, finding sexuality can control people, and that hurting herself might just leave others with nothing left to do and therefore leave her alone. At age 14, she can swear in her diary, and drugs and Bobby enter into the, <clears throat> enter into the diary, as well as admitting what Bob was doing, which means it took her two years to admit in writing that Bob was a person in her life instead of essentially an abstract concept. Her 14th year is when she finally admits what's happening to her is a reality. And in her 15th year, she realizes everything she's done to change her life from that pain has turned sour and has done exactly what Bob said it would, which essentially leads directly to her downfall. And from there, it just gets worse as she gets older, covering plot points while weaving itself through the threads that make up the show's first season. Now, this book is a tough book to get through, but it's also still part of the Twin Peaks canon, and there will still be some things related to um, mythology, the way reality works in Twin Peaks. We will be dealing with that. Um, uh, you know, in, in the normal spot of the episode. And um, the questions that we're left with in this regard are, how are we shown the two Lauras of the diary? What combination of masking memories and a battle with the proverbial devil are we dealing with? Who are Laura's support system and what are her coping mechanisms? How do we see Laura's dreams and light? Because we do see her light in here. And how does the whodunit nature of the Twin Peaks television show affect this book? Now, before this book even was an idea that could happen, um, Twin Peaks had to, had to catch the imagination of the audience. And, um, you know, who killed Laura, <clears throat> excuse me, who killed Laura Palmer was like a massive thing, um, in, in the discourse, uh, from, you know, uh, April and May of, of 1990. And, um, it was around then when, um, when merchandising possibilities started to grow. And, um, according to behind the scenes, uh, twin peaks behind the scenes by Mark Altman, uh, that was published in December of 90. So this is like really solid straight information during production. Um, he says, Frost and Lynch were determined not to simply cash in on the Twin Peaks phenomenon, but to create a line of merchandising that was totally original. And um, at the time, Pocket Books has been, had been publishing a lot of the Star Trek novels that was, uh, you know, like the, um, 
the non TV version of Star Trek had a long life in books. And, um, it seemed like a great fit for Twin Peaks and, um, uh, Pocket Books and uh, Lynch Frost Productions did get together to make a deal for a few books. Um, per Mark Frost, he says, The whole idea of the books is to expand the world of Twin Peaks past the television screen and give people some background that this was a place that was real to us and give people a chance to experience that. So some specific goals for this book in particular. It does a great job in explaining how Laura can be all the different aspects of the show or that of Laura that we see in the show. Obviously, we'll be going into that, but um, it also it also had a chance to introduce characters that we'll meet in season two for the first time. It's kind of like how um, we'll see Emmett Cooper in the My Life My Tapes book later on. That was. Uh, Scott Frost said specifically that was to introduce Cooper's brother into the show um, through a book. And then he was going to be a character that they were going to add for the proposed season three that never happened. In the case of The Secret Diary, it was written while season two was already being shot, which which means to me that um, the, the scripts are ahead of the shooting schedule. So I would say that... Um, there were probably about four episodes of season two written for sure when Jennifer Lynch was writing this, which translates to um, us already knowing that there would be uh, a Mrs. Tremond and her grandson who appear in the book. Uh, Harold appears in the book pretty solidly um, connected to the character that we'll meet um, in, you know, that, that uh, Donna will have scenes with. And, um, that also coincides with the storyline between Harold and Donna, where, um, you know, uh, Donna talks that she, she tells that one story about the skinny dipping and, um, you know, with, with the Canada boys and everything. So I would say there's almost a 100% guarantee that that was already written. Um, kind of like how the Bobby Jacoby did, did she laugh at you scene was already written and um, Jennifer Lynch incorporated that scene from Laura's point of view. Now there's some precedents that this book um, sets here for all future Twin Peaks book releases. Um, first of all, it's an item that you can actually find in universe. So like in theory, like you're, you're big ed and, um, you see this in the evidence box. <laughs> it's not ethical, but you could technically pick it up and read it. And um, in theory, it should work. Um, yeah, sorry for using Big Ed as an example, but you got to get your uh, your your fun somewhere, I guess, in this episode. Oy. More so than the found items thing, though, I would say the inconsistencies are the thing that is really established here. And I know Lindsay Stamhoys uh, said, you know, with all the, uh, with all the differences in this book versus all the other ones, you know, it's like she can imagine um, multiple universes of twin peaks in these things, which, I mean, you can think about it that way. I mean, I've had a, I've had a metaphor going where um, each item of twin peaks is kind of its own planet in a solar system. And they all kind of, have a similar gravity that influences each other. Um, there's ways to do that, but um, yeah. So anyway, there are inconsistencies. Um, 
okay, Bobby killed a guy. There's a guy in Lowtown, and then in Firewalk with me, it gets retconned to that uh, to that Deer Meadow deputy. Um, <clears throat> similarly, there's no Teresa Banks here. Um, so, um, you know, it's not that uh, Teresa Banks didn't exist. I mean, to be fair, there's room in the margins, just like how she's known James the whole time, but she hasn't written about it. You know, this is... Um, a cross between inconsistencies and unreliable narrator stuff here. Um, and, um, you know, same thing with the no mention of Laura winning Miss Twin Peaks in her, um, in her uh, last spring on Earth. Uh, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things that will show up in future episodes that do get reckoned from this book. But besides retconning, there's also this thing where Maddie... Um, knows Donna fairly well in this book. I mean, maybe they just haven't met in a while or whatever, and they need to reintroduce themselves. But uh, then Maddie, um, Maddie was in the scene where um, Sarah was getting the sketch of Bob done, and um, then a couple episodes later, when she, uh, when Maddie meets Donna again in the um, in the double R, she introduces herself by name. So yeah, there, there's this weirdness where Maddie and Donna don't really know each other and i know it's mostly a speed of production thing behind the scenes but uh there's a certain uh forgetfulness here that um you can almost say with like maddie and ronette in particular where you know people forget about them immediately when they're not in scenes again it's a production thing but in the reality of twin peaks it's also worth pointing out um and the the most strangely uh, regularly occurring thing is the dates issue. Um, in in the diary of Laura Palmer, it's it ends publication. Um, it ends like a year later. It ends in 1990, and it should end in 1989. But um, it's it's strange because we'll see it again in things like the Access Guide has dates about 1991. So. It seems like what what they ended up doing is that books end up aligning with their publication dates and as if you know the case was live that year so like um it it's it's really odd you know it's it's like it's matched up with us when we're watching Twin Peaks, and that our timeline uh at the time is the one that um sticks in our mind best so maybe that's why they do the dates but anyway it's another case for Lindsay Stamhoyce's thing about um, maybe multiple universes now you could say that uh, Jennifer Lynch was chosen for this because she happened to be David Lynch's daughter but um, uh, according to Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne um, Jennifer Lynch said the idea started years before Twin Peaks did I would be in a car with my father. I told him that I long had this fantasy of walking home from school and finding another girl's diary at the edge of the sidewalk by the gutter, of tucking it under my jacket and running home to read it to see if other girls dreamt and felt and feared the same things I did. That stayed with him. When Twin Peaks was born, the idea of the diary inevitably came up as a way to tell more of the story. He called me up right away and said, would you like to write Laura's diary? Of course, I said, are you kidding me? So 
at this point, you know, I mean, she's she's worked with her father a lot um, at this point. Like she was an assistant on Blue Velvet, too. So, um, you know, it's it's like a, a she's she's been proving herself that she can handle these kind of, you know, the, this kind of uh, upped involvement. But um, as she put it, this was also seed to fruition of a childhood fantasy. So it works on so many different levels for Jennifer Lynch. Now, when she got the job specifically, um, she got uh, she got brought into uh, David and Mark uh, Mark Frost's offices, and um, I, I'm assuming this is David Lynch saying it. You are one of three air breathing mammals who know. Um, so, like, she was told who the murderer was, and then she was basically told to go write the diary. And um, as she says, they gave me free reign. Now, the title wasn't her idea that that was uh lynch and frost uh they uh jennifer lynch said the title is a very male way of seeing diaries um because you know at the time at the you know stationary stores through like the 70s and the 80s they uh they sold all these little diaries that had printed right on the cover my secret diary and um and uh, Jennifer Lynch said that really imprinted on um, on Lynch and Frost. Now, this book was written over the, a three-week period. Um, it took a total of nine actual writing days, and um, Jennifer Lynch said that she lost it four times, too. And um, it's a, a quote from... Uh, and all these mishaps really ended up helping um, solidify the tone of this book. Uh, as Jennifer Lynch says, trust me, when you have little sleep and everything keeps vanishing, you think maybe Bob's involved somehow. Ended up making Laura's outlook a lot like uh, uh, another quote from Jennifer Lynch. Sleep deprived and fearful and anxiety ridden. Ridden. <laughs> but always with a frank belief that there is goodness from humanity. Now. There are some more details uh, about the production. Um, Jennifer Lynch wrote it not to exclude non-Peaks fans. So, you know, you don't, you don't have to be totally immersed in the show for this book to work. Uh, only two pages were removed uh, by Lynch and Frost because it got a little bit too close to the answer. Um, and then um, Jennifer Lynch has said on multiple occasions that it felt like part of her had absolutely nothing to do with writing the book. Like, like Laura was almost uh, channeling through her to write it. And back to Essential Wrapped in Plastic, um, it sounds like the end point was absolutely left up to Jennifer Lynch. Um, she was in touch with Lynch and Frost about it um, as she was finishing. Uh, but, um, you know, just to make sure that it lined up where they needed it to, too. But um, as far as Jennifer's angle on it, she says, I wanted her last words to be as hopeful and strong in her diary as they could be. Now, there are advantages to the diary format specifically um, that uh, Jennifer Lynch wanted a channel. And um, in addition to being part of Diane podcast, Rosie was also one of the voices in um, <clears throat> In Laura's Ghost by Courtney Stalling, where she, uh, Courtney interviews a number of women about their kinship that they have with Twin Peaks and with Laura. And, um, you know, just the story of, uh, you know, any, any hardships or any reasons why Laura's story particularly resonates with people. Um, I am not going to quote from that book very much because that 
I, I consider that a really fine line and I don't want to step over any more than I have to. Um, but if you feel a huge kinship with Laura Palmer, you are going to get a lot out of Laura's ghost. And I do recommend it, but it's not just about sexual abuse either. Like in, in that book, uh, Jennifer Lynch is also interviewed and, um, she shares how it's, you know, there's just the, the culture of being the culture and being a woman in the culture. Um, it's, it's all interrelated. Um, Jennifer Lynch shared about how she shares sets with other directors and how women are conditioned to feel like they need to act like men and need to compete with each other. Um, she spoke of a specific moment of shift when it goes from being one person's set to another's. And um, she says, you feel the different energy in different directors, and it can be a beautiful thing or a weird thing. I know that's about fear because I'm scared when it's happening. I try to walk up and just say, hey, have a great day. But sometimes I just can't because I'm too afraid. So I'm part of that. I know it's wrong. But it's a thing done to all women, which goes back to Laura. It's not like Bob or dad were doing any of the work to pretend things were okay. She had to do it all. That was all on her. And not just because she was a victim, but because she was a girl. And then they were going to judge it. Wash your hands and come on, sing. And it serves up this weird setup. And later on in that same interview, um, Lynch talks about how she was with a friend about how uh, she was talking with a friend about how normal sexual harassment was in the 80s and 90s. There were behaviors where if it happened to my daughter, I'd say you called the police, right? There was a part of Laura that would speak up for Donna, but could not speak up for herself. So, I mean, this really does feel to me like the diary is you know, telling it like it is and like it sounds. And um, it just feels like it's as authentic as you're going to get. So the end result of this book is that it was published on September 15th, 1990. This was four days after the after the soundtrack was published. I mean, uh, after, the, um, after the Twin Peaks original soundtrack was released. And it was 15 days before season two debuted. It topped out at number four on the New York Times bestsellers list. There was controversy. I mean, some bookstores wouldn't sell it because of its uh, because of its explicit content, um, but it still made it all the way up to number four. So, you know, good on you, Twin Peaks. Um, I didn't read it then, and uh, my my parents never brought it into the house then. Um, I, I saw it at bookstores, but you know, I, I think part of me didn't want to read it because, um, you know, it's like who who wants to know that much? And also, you know, it's like oh, it's a girl's thing because you know, girl uh, diaries really are coded for women, especially back in 1990. When I did finally come around to read the book, it was in 2015, so I could add some to the conversation to the Sparkwood and 21 podcast. Um, I would not have probably read this at any point if I didn't have to write about it. I mean, I I knew where this book was going to go and firewalk with me was tough enough. And, uh, 
I mean, it, it's like looking straight on at this stuff. Um, and I know that that's the foundation of Twin Peaks. It, it took me that long to take on this book head on. And um, I mean, for context, I'm going to I'm going to share some of that um, some of that feedback for Sparkwood and 21 podcast. And I'm going to mix it in with uh, with some writing that I did about the uh the Cheryl Lee read audiobook. Right after my 12th birthday is when Twin Peaks premiered. My mom was on board immediately, and I caught up over that first summer. I watched that Saturday Night Live with Kyle McLaughlin and everything. I was on board, and I enjoyed scaring myself with things as mundane as Bob ca- uh, crouching in the corner of Laura's bedroom and Leo hiding behind the door with an axe as Bobby came in. That's how young I was. I was not an early bloomer. I might have been a middle bloomer or even a late bloomer. In diary terms, when I started watching the show, I was definitely a Donna. Sad to say, maybe even a Jane. And then that season two premiere got real, and my extremely empathetic mind felt the show at that subliminal level, and Bob basically moved in to part of my brain and brought all his stuff with him. For years, Bob was in my nightmares. I actively avoided mirrors, especially in my bathroom, because I didn't want to see Bob looking back. This is me, a real-life person, scared in my core of something from a TV show. Scared I might be inhabited by the boogeyman. I was on one side of puberty and wasn't sure what I'd turn into when I matured. And I prayed to God my baser instincts would not be as primally bad as those Bob displayed. Turning into a man is a scary prospect anyway, but turning into that kind of a man, inhabited by primal evil, especially when he was already in my nightmares, if it can give a boy pause, or darn it, <clears throat> it can give a boy pause. Yet there he was in my dreams, constantly reminding me of what could happen if I wasn't on guard. This whole time, I'd never once read The Secret Diary, never once watched Fire Walk with me. I never once knew that Laura was also scared of becoming him from within. By the time I found Twin Peaks on Bravo and watched the episodes in the middle that I missed the first time I watched, I was 17 years old, and that meant for five years the relentless terror of Bob was regularly in my nightmares and therefore was very real. It gives me a point of reference whenever I'm confronted with the diary, as that is the exact length of years covered in this book. I realize I'm a real person who'd never been sexually assaulted and that Laura was both sexually assaulted and a fictional character, so there's obvious scale issues with this comparison, but the scariest boogeyman of my life was exactly Laura's boogeyman in this book. I'm TV-style backseat view of the abuse and violence can leave such an impression on me. I can't even comprehend how a character like Laura could have done anything different than she did in her diary just to take the weight off her shoulders and cloud her eyes from something more indelible than images alone can produce. Now, usually at this point in the episode, we go into my log has something to tell you because there's a log lady intro that goes in front of it that uh, recontact or that uh, contextualized by Lynch. But, um, I mean, it's it's kind of a famous thing. Well, first of all, there's no Log Lady intro for this because it wasn't a TV episode. And second of all, it's kind of a regularly occurring thing that David Lynch doesn't read any of the Twin Peaks books. Um, you know, he, he says, I have not read this book. And, um, 
you know, Jennifer Lynch says, yeah, he's probably never read this book. You know, he likes to keep his vision of Twin Peaks kind of in his own lane and um, not influenced by, as, you know, outside sources as much as humanly possible. I get that. Um, <clears throat> but this was a huge influence in Fire Walk With Me because while David Lynch hasn't read it, Cheryl Lee has. Uh, in... Um, in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, she uh, she spoke to John Thorne and said, The book was with me night and day during the filming of Fire Walk with me. I carried it everywhere and would constantly refer back to it. It was such a blessing to have. I think that Jennifer's amazing. She's so talented and writes from a place of truth. It's funny. When I see people hold the diary, I almost feel like they shouldn't be reading it. I feel like it's personal. It's a very strange thing. We get very close to our characters. So I did carry the book everywhere and use it. And um, it's not just Fire Walk With Me where she had it. Um, uh, in, 20, in 2017, Audible published the audiobook version of this, done years later, and Cheryl Lee is the one who read it. Something I read in the Cheryl Lee audiobook article um, was that Lee made sure the heart, soul, and pain within Laura in the book's pages were presented to us with possibly even more rawness at times than she showed in Fire Walk With Me. How can I say that without automatically being lumped into hyperbole? She conveyed everything about a 12-year-old girl falling into darkness, broke my heart over and over, and to do it, she didn't have to scream once. Yeah, Cheryl Lee absolutely feels this character in her bones. Like it, um, the way the way she put it to Courtney Stallings in Laura's Ghost, um, she talks about how she was just acting when playing Laura. But this happens every day to our girls. Every day, when I'm doing scenes like that, it never leaves my thoughts. And yeah, I mean, this is absolute respect from from the actress to her character i mean she has a like laura essentially kind of haunts her career like sometimes it's in tough ways i mean she had to basically stop acting for a little while to recover from playing laura in fire walk with me uh we'll get into that more during during the episode on fire walk with me but um i mean it's it's not easy being laura palmer and playing laura palmer and um yeah, I mean, it, it's it's like Laura Palmer keeps coming back, too. I mean, in 2017, at the very beginning, you know, th there's so many cycles between Cheryl Lee and, and Twin Peaks. And um, then she she even gets this uh, this connection at at conventions that she goes to. And she goes to a lot of conventions and. Uh, she she basically says that's the good kind of haunting when um when she gets people coming up to her and i mean she, they they give her the confidence you know they, they um they they tell her they they tell her their stories and you know she she gets to sit with them and let them share their stories and she finds this to be absolutely beautiful that this can happen and somehow she carries the weight of all this. And I mean, it's, it, it's a pretty great legacy for a book that, you know, I mean, it, it, 
it didn't need to be anything more than written quickly and tie into a TV show. And, you know, we get this. It's it's like, in a lot of ways, it's really cathartic. And, um, it, yeah, I mean, it's... Jennifer Lynch and Cheryl Lee and everybody involved went above and beyond, especially in regards to this book. And before we start breaking down the book specifically... Uh, we are going to hear from some of our uh, fellow podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, well, welcome back, and we are going to begin looking into um the actual secret diary of laura palmer now where um we're we're going to start out by talking about the two lauras that we see in this book so the first entry of the book or the first two entries of the book take place on her actual 12th birthday and um it's it's basically a day that's split in half just like laura will be it's very thematic i'm sure it was on purpose um it begins the the first uh, the first entry is all excitement and like 12 year old girl happiness you know she uh she writes a note in the diary about the diary it's like you are my best present you are i'm i promise to confide everything in you share everything with you um you know it's it's uh uh, she she got a present from donna um maddie's arriving the next day uh and then um, you know they're they're going to go camping in the woods, and we get a detail about how she um, she loves the woods almost as or her dad loves the woods almost as much as she does. Uh, you know, and then and then there's uh, she goes into a dream about um, her dad moving the whole family into the woods, and um, there's two songbirds outside the window um, with a big tree. Uh, so it's mostly positive. It's definitely. Um, it's definitely showing us right away that Laura puts a lot into, um, you know, her dreams. Like they mean something, you know, she remembers them. Uh, she feels her dreams. She feels the woods. Um, you know, she gets a present from Donna and then like, she wants to reciprocate it back. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a good establishing thing while still keeping the tone of, you know, happy 12 year old girl. And then um, the next half of the episode shows that Laura's getting an even better present uh, in that uh, Leland brings the family to a stable and uh, Laura gets a secret pony that she'll share everything with, including a birthday, because that's what happens when a horse is gifted to someone. They share everything. Um, so again, thematic stuff that will happen all the way through this book. Uh, <clears throat> and... Um, you know, then then we get a little note that you know Laura already knows about penises because that's the first thing she checks for, um, and then we get a note that um, that Bob comes at night. Basically, you know, P.S. I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. Uh, so we get everything else in this one. You know, a whole bunch of secrets. Um, you know, we don't know how Troy got into this thing. Sarah didn't know that they were getting Troy. Um, you know, <laughs> and then of course, you know, Bob at the end. So, like, right there, we get absolutely everything um, in a microcosm of these factors that are already in Laura's life. 
And, um, you know, this is like, this is like one Laura and she's going to become another Laura and we're going to look at how. Now, one dichotomy with Laura that we could look at is how she has the connections with the woods. So there's a in the woods, Laura, and an out of the woods, Laura, sort of. Um, okay, what are the woods already established in Twin Peaks? Um, well, Harry Truman says, Twin Peaks is different. A long way from the world, you've noticed that. That's exactly the way we like it. But there's a back end of that that's kind of different, too. Maybe that's the price we pay for all of the good things. There's a sort of evil out there. Something very, very strange in these old woods. Call it what you will, a darkness, a presence. It takes many forms, but it's been out there for as long as anyone can remember, and we've always been here to fight it. Men before us, men before them, more after we're gone. And um, Khalil from the Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange Log cast basically um, you know, connected these dots that the book house were no help at all to Laura. And, you know, I mean, he, he was calling it like a man cave or a place where, uh, you know, guys hang out with their, uh, fraternity buddies or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because like the show is all about that fight, but yet they couldn't focus in on Laura Palmer. And, um, you know, part of that also reminds me that these words about the forest came from Harry, and Harry basically stuck up for Leland in that um, in that hearing uh, where where Leland's um, on trial for the murder of Jacques Renault, and you know he basically calls Leland Palmer a pillar of the community. So yeah, the Bookhouse Boys don't really look beyond patriarchy. I mean, it's a I think it's an accidental. Um, indictment of patriarchy, but I mean, you, you got to figure from 1990, patriarchy was just, you know, the default. You know, it's like nobody questioned it. It just was like that right then. And um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that in this book, a girl who's like not even old enough to, um, you know, be, be in any adult circumstances. Like they're not really being looked at the same way that, um, well, I mean, really anything in Twin Peaks, it's very much, you know, it's like you're either good or you're bad apparently. And, um, that's kind of how Laura's looking at it too. I mean, she's, she's always talking about making good choices here or making bad choices here. And, um, you know, then she like goes into why she makes the choices, you know, it's like, uh, that, uh she, she tries to control her situation. So she's like more like Donna or, you know, toward the end, you know, eventually she'll, uh, um, she focuses on controlling what she can. You know, she, uh, she wonders at this age at, at 12 years old, you know, like how, uh, you know, she wonders if Jesus had all these, uh, you know, if, if he was secretly like her, where there were things that were bad or, you know, did he do bad things? And, you know, it's like, she's, uh, she's pretty much scared that, um, you know, she's doing things that nobody else does. Um, but it's not really a dichotomy. This book isn't a dichotomy of good or bad, Laura, either. Um, because, I mean, the, you know, th those are like the intention behind the fire. You know, it's like, you know, the good and the bad, they both bring things to her. But it's, um, it's not who she is. It's what she does. So, 
um, you know, even though she's concerned about it in in ways where it does affect her life, you know, it's the the dichotomy isn't good or bad. It's it's more so this um, what I what. I'm calling it authentic Laura and protector Laura. And authentic Laura is the Laura who can feel things. And the protector Laura is the one who basically tries to make the world okay for authentic Laura to be in. So like authentic Laura can enjoy her body and enjoy the sex. And, you know, it's like, she's really happy that she woke up with an orgasm in her sleep, you know, things like that. You know, it's like anytime Laura feels something, that tends to be the authentic Laura. And, um, you know, even, even drugs can do that to begin with, you know, Maddie brought the cigarette and it felt kind of good. Uh, uh, the, uh, the boys from Canada brought in marijuana, you know, it's like there, there are ways to, you know, feel good things from things, but you're not exactly trying to bury things underneath that feeling per se. Like, you know, the, the feeling of it that she gets that, that makes her feel okay. You know, I, I would file that mostly under authentic Laura, but you know, as, as we go through the diary, it's more and more about controlling her circumstances. And, um, you know, that, that's all protector Laura by the end. Um, you know, it's, it's the harder Laura who refuses authentic Laura in a lot of ways and, you know, defends her from, from the attacks and the bad things. And, um, you know, like everything, uh, pr- the protector side of Laura takes on making it through, and eventually the protector side of Laura takes on certain personas too. You know, it's like the the public Laura is a thing kind of off. You know, it's it's like a, a the 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 Laura who gets good grades and the Laura who's in the homecoming photo. You know, it's like don't don't mind what's actually happening behind the scenes in those things. You know, it's like the public Laura is a byproduct of protector Laura trying to be good. And, um, you know, like sometimes, sometimes things with, uh, authentic Laura come up and, and match up with public Laura too, because, you know, and then you've got meals on wheels, you've got helping Johnny, things like that. Um, but you know, then it mostly keeps up with the, uh, with the protector Laura because she's keeping her troubles and her secrets like inside where nobody can see them and nobody can touch them except Laura. And then there's another, um, another side of Laura that's a byproduct of protector Laura. It's basically coping Laura. Um, you know, sometimes it lines up with the authentic Laura because, you know, she will still experience certain kinds of sex that makes her feel good. And, um, you know, the feelings of being blissed out and everything, but mostly, um, coping Laura is trying to be numb and disconnect from that, that real Laura, quote unquote, um, the, 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 the little girl, 12 year old Laura that she's trying to protect. Now, from a Jungian perspective, we're probably looking at how authentic Laura keeps inside the authentic Laura or the, um, the, the protector Laura keeps authentic Laura inside her and like becomes a shell around her. And like, she actually talks about this sort of thing where, you know, she's going to keep that, um, you know, she's going to keep that good Laura safe from, um, things until she could come out and be with Bobby or, you know, like there's many things that, um, you know, Laura is protecting something now from uh, for a better future um and um you know that that to me feels like you know the the archetypes are separating you know it's like laura is segmenting herself into 
um, not integration essentially. Like she's not being integrated with all the different sides of her. She's, um, she's trying to go through them one at a time until she feels like she can come back together. And honestly, toward the end when she's 16 and meets Jacoby, like her, um, you know, the, the diary has been a constant, um, coping mechanism through the whole thing, but even that ends up getting segmented. You know, she's, she's kind of talking about her, um, her way back to authentic Laura with, um, with the tapes that she gives to Jacoby. And, um, you know, then there's a home diary where, you know, public Laura can live in, you know, like, so people could see that side of her. And then, you know, the protector Laura, um, stays in here, um, talking about how she's like, um, doing multiple different kinds of things to, <laughs> to protect herself. And like, you know, she's like, I can't even write in here anymore because I'm too busy filling out the other diary and doing the tapes for Jacoby. And, um, and then she has to give up this diary to Harold because, you know, she can't even protect the diary anymore because she doesn't even think she's going to be around. So, yeah, the, the polarities that she's concerned with um, is basically being good, Laura. You know, she's the one who wants to be like Donna, who who actually listens to Bob when he gives her reasons uh, why he does things to her. You know, it's like, oh, you're smelly. You're this, you know, it's like, oh, if she can, you know, just be good enough to take away the reasons that Bob tells her, you know, she's bad. Then maybe he'll leave her alone. Um, and you know, like the, this, this good Laura, uh, action that she takes, you know, and it, it, it doesn't take into account that, Bob is doing all this grooming and gaslighting, you know, it's like, she just wants to get rid of him doing whatever she can. And, um, and eventually she goes over to, you know, it's like, Oh, maybe I could be bad. You know, maybe, maybe the more bad I do. And like, this comes from that one dream where, you know, she's, uh, she chews her own foot off and before the rat can get to it, you know, uh, Laura wants to, Laura wants to hurt herself essentially and be bad and be so bad that Bob doesn't have any reason to hurt her and Bob can't hurt her anymore because Laura already did it all. If you look at the polarities of the good Laura and the bad Laura, it's all focused on removing Bob from her life and has nothing to do with her. It's all about Bob. Okay. So who is Bob to Laura in this book? Um, Okay, she knows him already on her 12th birthday. You know, she's already wary of him, doesn't want him around, you know, hope he doesn't come tonight. You know, so he's a feared presence from the get-go. So Christian from Manners and Manners, when they were um, when they were covering The Secret Diary on their podcast, um, they got the impression that Bob is a manifestation from Laura. Uh, and, and I'm quoting Christian here, uh, maybe a manifestation of trauma that someone looks like that did to her, a manifestation of a darker side of her life or of herself. Loosely speaking, a mental illness, shame, something that torments her when she's growing up. Um, and then they continue. As teenagers, people will have a lot of shame about sexuality and about growing up and feeling certain things. And Bob is this embarrassment of it in a sick and dark way. And it's maybe easier for Laura to separate herself from it and point it as this demonic evil person when in actuality it might be a part of herself who wants to fully commit to this stuff, but she can't because she views herself as evil and twisted. And, um, 
and Christian was a newbie for this podcast. So like he didn't actually know who Bob was or anything, but he ended up picking Leland as the killer in this at, at the end of this uh, Secret Diary series they did. So Bickering Peaks, um, they definitely second this opinion. You know, um, Lindsay over there said Bob could be a psychological artifact of abuse. But then we get all the stuff from the TV show. Um, you know, it's a who is Bob to Leland? Well, Mark Frost um, in um, in Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, the uh, the book by Mark Altman that was published in '90 um, during the show's run, um, Frost basically describes Bob's psychic powers, and um, he says when Leland talks about knowing Bob as a child and says that. It says this was someone who invited me to play and I invited him in. There's a certain classic type of vampire myth that comes into play when a soul that invites something into it to take part in its life cannot then refuse it anything. That's a myth that goes way back before pre-Christian times. And that's one possible explanation. The other is that Leland is just completely whacked out of his mind. So, I mean, you could see that pretty clearly that, you know, it could also be that sort of parasite, um, you know, Bob and and just like, OK, he he was successful with Leland for sure, um, you know, based on everything from episode 16. Um, you know, let's let's assume that it's at least what Leland believes the situation is. Um, so, you know, it, it's possible that um, that Bob is here in this book beginning the process with Laura where he's trying to hollow her out. Um, you know, in episode 16, some of the quotes that, um, Leland is saying as Bob is Leland was a good vessel. Now he's full of holes, a hole where his conscience used to be pull the ripcord and watch him remember. So like, is, is that hole being filled with memories that Bob is finally letting him see? You know, it's like, there's, there's all sorts of ways to look at that, which we will later. But um, after the the entry exactly after meeting the log lady, um, it's it's the twenty second entry of the book. It's three days after that, you know. And um, Laura is in the woods listening to the woods. Um, you know, she gets this idea that um, inside the trees are souls. Uh, you know, so like she's paralleling with what we know about the log lady. And um, part part of it goes in about how like humans don't think to see what the trees and the woods can tell them about things that happen to her. Like all the, all the signs of trouble, all the signs of, of what was probably a rape uh, by Bob on Laura. Like it's, there, there's all sorts of uh, things in that, that are so obvious, but it's still coded in like a certain kind of poetry, the way that Laura is writing it in this entry. But one thing she talks about is there's a new, new hole inside her, a new smaller mouth um, underneath her mouth. So it's like, it's like in her, in, you know, it's, it's like around where her heart is probably where she's describing this smaller mouth. And, um, you know, this is like, you know, doubles and splitting and, uh, you know, the, the Jungian way of like, uh, you know, separating parts of yourself, compartmentalizing. Um, and you know, it's, it's like the division of herself, but also in the shape of a physical wound. And, um, I, I think this is the beginning of Bob trying to hollow out Laura to make space for him inside her. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear. Like, at the end of that entry, she says, it is late and he came tonight. I don't think the log lady was talking about the right Laura Palmer. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's these physical results after an assault, but it still happened and it takes shape spiritually as well. But here, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Leland was weak enough that he just let Bob stay in that hole. But, you know, here, Laura doesn't let him in. You know, she immediately decides to fight from that point. Now, I mean, there's other tricky parts about how Bob is seen by other people that could, that could tell us more about how Bob is in the hole of Twin Peaks. Um, you know, Sarah finally starts seeing Bob uh, after she a, after Laura's dead. You know, it's like that's when she sees her first vision of it. So it, it's almost like the manifestation of her guilt finally lets her see what was already happening. You know, the physical form of Laura's abuse is finally starting to take shape because, you know, how else did Laura die? You know, what are the reasons for it? Well, maybe she can finally see why Maddie sees Bob. It's probably because Bob is trying to restart the cycle with someone and and he makes it known to her. There's logic with this l later, but like, does this work the same way with Cooper? Um, you know, he sees Bob in a dream first off. And um, I think in that way, he's connected more to the side that Bob is like a vampire-like entity. Um, you know, connected by dreams, which is where the Red Room and the Black Lodgey kind of characters can live. Um, you know, that's how Laura first saw Bob through dreams. You know, it's like she wasn't sure it was even happening for years. You know, she she didn't realize that it wasn't just dreams doing it to her. I mean, not not all parts of herself realized it wasn't just dreams. Uh, the same Christian for Manners and Madness episode basically wonders if Cooper's embracement of the supernatural elements of Twin Peaks is that him giving in to Laura's all-consuming psychological journey. So that almost figures into Laura is the dreamer. You know, it's like, are we all, is all the supernatural stuff born from, from Laura? And it's taking physical shape because of her trauma. There are all sorts of ways to look at this. There's also Bob's relation to the missing pages of this book. And this kind of goes into more like who is Leland, who is Bob. The missing pages per Jennifer Lynch in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, um, the, the pages that are, you know, the, the ones that say the page has been ripped out. Why would they be ripped out? Because they would lean into something that Leland would want to tear out. Um, it would be calling out Bob and Leland in it. It had to affect his ego, essentially. It's like what he chose to leave in, and this is according to Jennifer Lynch, is an attempt to embarrass Laura. And what he'd remove would be hurtful to him in his pride. Um, uh, she said, uh, Lynch said that um, it would be maybe Sarah starting to know something. Um, you know, it's like the... Uh, Jennifer Lynch said the, the perfect family picture had to stay alive. So the pages had to go. Now, when Diane podcast covered this book, they, they framed, they framed the book as the maiden, the monster and the fight between them. Um, you know, they're, they're basically saying you don't have to take a supernatural, supernatural reading at all on this book. You know, it's a psychological reaction of a young girl who is suffering from abuse and, as they say, it maps perfectly over the supernatural-related elements. You know, it's like the, the, book, the book parameters itself, you know, the ones that ABC imposed on this book, 
force Laura to hide the truth from herself, which is, I mean, it, it's psychologically truthful and it ends up working with what's needed in Twin Peaks too. You know, it's like, we can't spoil the mystery in here. We can't find out who Bob is. So this means the in-universe Laura that's working on this book isn't actually too deeply looking into that answer. And why isn't she looking into the answer of who Bob is? You know, why isn't she Nancy Drewing it? Because of fear. You know, it's a, uh, they, um, the, the Diane podcast goes on, the, you know, the splitting of the personality, the stunning growth of their victim. Bob is the voice inside her head of guilt, depression, and sickness, and is omnipresent, but not entirely. Here, he only manifests as mental illness rather than evil that is done by man. And, you know, that it's, um, it's interesting, like how it takes, I mean, it, it takes the whole book. It, it, it takes the whole book to kind of figure out that Laura is actively keeping the secret from herself because she doesn't want to know. I mean, there's an entry kind of in the middle, I think when she's 15, where she's basically talking about, um, you know, I am who you think I am, basically. Um, you know, it's like fear keeps truth from becoming a need until the want is strong enough to overcome her fear on the subject. Um the the whole arc of Laura in this book is to overcome her fear and move from the innocence of not knowing to knowledge. That said, it really does match well with this battle with the devil that uh, that Diane podcast talked about. Rosie, one of their hosts, she basically said, if a demon's going to come for you, it's not going to come for your stuff and career. It's going to come for your soul and your mind. And... um yeah, I mean, that's essentially what Bob is doing. You know, he's trying to take up real estate in every thought of Laura. The battle between them, uh, I've said it already. I mean, it starts with that rat dream. You know, it's like she may be in the trap, but she's actually owning it. You know, she, and, um, you know, she's fighting the actual devil going into herself to do it. Um, you know, whether she knows she's going into herself to do it or not, that's uh, that's a different case. But I mean, essentially, it's it's that kind of battle. Um, one good thing about this battle being there from a from a um, narrative standpoint is um, like how um, I, I think this was Rosie again. She basically said fighting the devil saves this from being a cautionary tale. So, um, you know, without battle, it'd be who. You know, like what what could Laura have done differently not to die? You know, we'd be thinking about that the whole time. But because it's an active thing, um, Rosie continued, she is a shining example of resistance. Her life should have pleasure and magic in it. And she never gave up on that. So Laura's trying to create distance from her presence here. That's one thing. Another thing that... Um, the Diane podcast noted, you know, it's like she's reducing herself. Like she's becoming, you know, it's like we, we don't hear about the outward shell of a life. That's what I was calling the public life. You know, it's like she's retreating into herself in a certain way. They, they got me wondering if, um, if Bob is this wisdom or the fire that she needs to walk through in order to understand that it's Leland. Like, does she need to walk through this whole dream scenario or the, this thing that she started to know in her dreams? Does she have to go through that completely in order to get through the facade that it was Leland the whole time? And, you know, like, like I said, you know, it's like, 
she doesn't really want the answer of who Bob is. And Bob even tells her in the diary, I am who you think I am. And there's still pages and months and I think over a year at that point before the book finally ends. And that means that she finally agrees with that answer. As far as how Jennifer Lynch uh, spoke about the ending in Essential Wrapped in Plastic again, she said, I wanted to give her enough so that she went away with some of her last thoughts being, I know who I am and I know what is being done to me. Whatever the other side is, I have done as much as I can with this life. So it really was about a battle through this whole thing. And it's about, I mean, it's essentially what everybody's been saying up to this point, where she's wanting to not give in to the, the people that are trying to make her lose herself. So now begs the question... What tools does Laura have while waging this battle she's waging against Bob? Um, I mean, however fragile it is, she does have a support system and she does have some coping mechanisms. Um, the first part of her, uh, the first part of her coping system is her diary itself. I mean, she immediately, um, you know, she pledges allegiance to it basically. So she's going to tell it everything, even the things she can't tell anybody. Um, you know, it's, uh, she, she says it's her best present. And, uh, um, at the time that means that was the thing she most needed. Um, and she absolutely does need this space for self-expression. And, you know, I mean, she's not being told what to think for a change and she absolutely needs that. Um, there's a there was a guest on um, the Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange logcast who who put it this way. She said, "Laura can express herself, which is good, but it's the only place she feels she can. And the diary cannot talk back or give love. It cannot explain why Laura's cognitive distortions are distortions." So, I mean, that sums up the the major issue with where she goes and eventually why she ends up splitting off in other things, probably. I mean, as, as far as the plot goes with this, um, you know, at 12, she's worrying out loud about, you know, it's like, oh, was Jesus doing things like this? Did he ever feel anything like I'm feeling? Um, you know, and then she talks about some fantasies that she has about, you know, the, the kinds of the kinds of things men should do or, you know, she'd want to do uh, to her uh, or with her, hopefully. Uh, you know, I mean, she's sharing all this for the first time. And then she talks about how she needs to find a safe place for this diary and, you know, how she's going to tape it up on the back of her uh, bulletin board. And, um, you know, she hopes it doesn't fall. So, I mean, that pretty much foreshadows the end of her 12th year when that diary does seem to be read. I'm sure it got unstuck and fell. And, um, you know, it it's uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, it's it's almost like it was it, it's it's almost like it was so fragile that you know it almost had to happen kind of like that um yet you know over a year later she comes back to the book you know she sticks with this book you know especially in regards to how she is with bobby later i mean she puts everything in here all her harrowing stories of when she's 15 and you know like uh doing the drug running and the the getting uh getting kidnapped by truckers you know things like that it's all in the diary because she needs a place for this though it 
age 16, she'll split off from that. You know, it's like how she has this public Laura that comes out in this book that is probably the thing that, um, you know, Harry Truman, you know, you didn't know Laura Palmer. You know, it's like, we don't know public Laura. And um, in part, it's probably because public Laura split off into its own diary. Um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the mundane stuff, you know, it's like, Oh, asparagus again, you know, things like that, that it's, and it ends up that the diary itself is getting a shell that way, you know, protecting it from being able to be where Laura puts her major thoughts. And then, um, soon after that, um, she ends up bumping into Jacoby where, you know, he gives her a cassette recorder and she starts recording there. And then that one, um, ends up being less reinforcement. You know, it's, it's, a uh, it's less of an echo chamber of her own thoughts in those cassettes. And, um, you know, Jacoby's actually there giving her, uh, recognition of cognitive distortions. You know, he's not reinforcing how bad she is or, you know, it's like all the things she believes about herself. He's not reinforcing any of that. Um, but you know, even with that, Laura still holds a reverence for the diary. You know, I mean, however divided it is, you know, whether there's a, a an active helping herself, Laura, whether there's a, a a public, you know, protect myself, Laura, there's also the kind where she can just put her thoughts still. And that's still this diary the whole way through. And, um, you know, it's, it's not something that she won't protect in multiple ways. I mean, the very last entry, you know, she's going to give it to Harold for safekeeping. So yeah, the diary is probably her, um, most important <laughs> support system through this whole crazy ordeal, you know, who should be her biggest support system through the whole thing is probably supposed to be Leland and Sarah. Obviously we know things, um, you know, since this diary has been published, but, um, you know, it's like her her protectors are basically stuck looking from the outside in if they're looking at all. Uh, I mean, of course, Leland's Bob. And I mean, there there's bits and pieces through this about how Laura knows. I mean, in the, in the 68th entry, you know, um, the uh, Bob's final voice, uh, final voice appearance in the in the book. You know, it's like right around when um, when Laura's uh, pregnant. You know, Laura, Laura does that thing where she says, who are you really? Which gets echoed really creepily in Fire Walk With Me. And, um, I mean, she gets a similar truth here, honestly. I mean, it's, it's the same kind of setup. You know, she asks this question, really means it. And then she actually gets the answer. It's just that Bob says, I am what you fear I could be. So, like, she could know right then what the situation is, but she just, I don't know, well, whistled past it, I guess. Uh, but anyway, through the, through the diary, we have Leland. Um, you know, okay, so he starts off, yeah, he, the first thing we know about him is he likes the woods as much as Laura does. The second thing we know about him is he keeps secrets from everybody, including Sarah, about Troy the horse. You know, ooh, it would have ruined the surprise. Okay, whatever. Uh, and I I counted it up. He's only in 10 entries as an active character, you know, rather than, you know, it's like, oh, and, 
you know, oh, mom and dad, you know, where are they? You know, that, you know, like when she's thinking about him, that's a little different. Um, but when he's actually a participating character in the diary, he's only in 10 of these things and he's usually on the periphery. Um, and the last, the last entry when he physically appears is the Christmas Laura turns 15 and, you know, they're dancing in the living room, uh, just like they used to do it. And, um, Laura says, you know, he's crying. He has a tear down his cheek or whatever. Um, and then he's holding her tight, which, um, I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of Maddie and Donna in, in the scenes of episodes 14 and 16. Uh, you know, when he, when he grips them really close after, after, well, I mean, okay, Maddie, he wasn't doing it while she was dancing, but, um, but Donna, yeah, that's absolutely kind of what it looked like when he, when he almost pulled her in and looked like he was getting ready to kill her before, uh, Truman interrupted. Uh, so I don't know if, if they used some of this diary language to code him that way, but, um, it's possible that it's showing guilt. It's, it's possible that Leland is, um, actually getting through to like what he's doing in this case. Um, and realizing something i don't know but sarah thought it was happiness you know oh it, it, uh, you know this is the, the this made my whole year uh but yeah i mean this kind of going back to basics that's the very last time leland is ever mentioned in this book as far as sarah goes um one of the first things we okay first thing we know is she gets in the dark with leland's stuff uh, second thing we know is that she ends up oversharing things, you know, like that, that one time when Laura sleptwalked and, uh, took off all her clothes and put it in the dishwasher. And now the Haywards have a running joke every time that, um, you know, she walks past the dishwasher. It's like, Oh, it's not a, it, or it's, it's, a you know, it's, it's not the washer. It's the, the oven or, you know, like whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, she, it, after Laura shares that story, she says, you know, Sarah was drinking at the time. So drinking, uh, um, Sarah drinks, she medicates, um, you know, or self-medicates, you know, it's like, is it, uh, you know, it's like she, she goes into a different state of freedom or whatever when she drinks, um, same way drugs are always kind of a way to unlock something. Um, as far as the frog bug, you know, gifted, damned, uh, the Judy stuff. I mean, technically there could be a frog bug in there eating the pain, but I kind of think of that whole thing is that the frog bug hasn't matured yet. Um, if Sarah hasn't seen Bob yet, that means that probably the frog bug is slightly dormant as well. What's probably really happening is Sarah's being blinded by, you know, whether it's milk or the gaslighting or, um, you know, it's like she she doesn't see a horse yet. You know, like there's all these things that she. I mean, you know, we're we're gonna reassess this after Firewalk with me. Um, you know, especially after that scene where um, you know, Leland's telling her wash your hands. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna give Sarah a good um character dissection or whatever you call it uh, analysis. Um, but right here. Um, I mean, right now we have things like how Laura sometimes actually sees how she and Sarah could be friends. Um, you know, they, they have a solid conversation after they reconcile over, um, Sarah revealing her period to everybody. Um, 
I mean, yeah, the, <laughs> let's shine a light and walk away from why would Sarah think Leland would be so proud? Uh, I'm sure there's all sorts of behaviors why that would be. And um, I am glad that they don't really dig into any of them here because, ugh. uh, <clears throat> but yeah, throughout the book, like there's, there's a good talk they have um, where they talk about Margaret, the log lady after, after Laura meets her. Um, I mean, there, there's times when she actually does get close to Sarah, but I kind of feel like, you know, sure they share dreams, but they also share this ability to like keep secrets openly. I mean, Sarah, she, you know, it, when that Christmas when Laura's 15, you know, it's like she's looking backwards. She's not seeing necessarily what's really going on with Leland and Laura when they're dancing in their living room. Uh, you know, she might be looking back and seeing Laura as a little girl and Leland as someone who's close to her. Uh, and, um, and that scene, that, that Christmas when she was 15, I mean, after it, it, this was after a whole year of Laura trying to understand how Leland and Sarah never know, never come in. You know, it's like, are they, are they, um, is Bob holding them captive too? So that, you know, like, uh, is it, did he scare them into not helping Laura? Um, are they in cahoots with Bob? You know, it's like, is Bob in cahoots with God? Yeah. I mean, there's all these things that, um, you know, she's suspicious because she feels like Leland and Sarah do have to know something and like, oh, but regardless of all those permutations, the only time we see Sarah after this and the only time she's mentioned after this one time and and um, in um, Laura's 15th Christmas um she's absolutely clueless when, when Laura gets home from her abortion. You know, she's like, oh, how was the job interview? You know, she's purposely looking away again. And um, then, you know, she hears that Maddie called and that Laura was actually excited to talk to her and rushes off to do it. And um, Sarah shoots jealousy at Laura's back. So, you know, sure, Sarah and Laura are connected through dreams, but that's not enough. You know, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be a little bit more active to have a real connection. And, um, I mean, even Maddie has that and she's like, you know, miles away, literally. Uh, <clears throat> and Maddie is the other dream connected one. So like, does Sarah know that Maddie also has the dreams? Uh, I don't know. So is, is Sarah jealous toward Maddie or, of Laura for being Leland's focus. I mean, there's all sorts of things. Or, I mean, is she just jealous toward anybody who knows her daughter and that her daughter is thankful for? Or is this like a really extra level creepy with with um, how Leland is with Laura when he should be with Sarah? I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, this book is not easy. The book starts off with Laura being 12 and her first major support structure through that year of being 12 or, you know, the four months that she wrote as a 12 year old. Um, her biggest supporters were Donna and Manny. So I noticed right away the very first thing we hear about Donna is that um, is that she bought Laura a present with her allowance that she'd been saving up for for a while and you know keeping it secret from Laura. So 
Okay, so they do keep secrets. That's a that's kind of an established thing, you know, even if it's just a birthday present level right now. Um, but you know, Laura really responds to, I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to save up everything and I'm going to get her something really, really great. So, I mean, she's reciprocating with, you know, an equal value, an equal sacrifice. You know, it's like it, it's it's transactional the way she deals with friends, because probably Bob makes everything transactional um, already, you know, even from skipping. So the first non um, non Troy related thing, um, after her, after a couple of dreams is that, um, um, Laura and Maddie and Donna all have a fort out in the backyard. And, um, you know, Laura's talking about how it's security, you know, it's like, there's a safe place. There's a, um, you know, it's made with close friends. Um, you know, the wood came from Ed, hammered together by Leland. You know, it's like she's got all this stuff coming together to make this really cool fort where they can have their safe space. And, um, you know, Donna's a realist through this whole thing. And she says, oh, I think this thing can fall over in a storm. But then Laura thinks it can withstand anything. You know, the power of friendship or whatever. <laughs> you know, she's, uh, she's kind of dreaming. Uh, but uh, we got Maddie also in there, and Maddie is 16, and Maddie is the 16 that Laura wants to have. You know, she's uh, Maddie is stylish, she's happy, she has a boyfriend to kiss, and, um, you know, and then she brings cigarettes, and, you know, all of this stuff is really cool to Laura. And, um, you know, the, this this kind of starts off a pattern where, Laura doesn't find things exactly on her own. She always has people that are part of her support system bringing her things. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, bringing drugs of varying levels. Um, Maddie brings the first one and it's the cigarettes. And, um, you know, the first thing she says is like these wispy spirits are coming out of her. Um, so it almost has like this, this level of, of, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Laura likes feeling not quite the way she would normally feel without it. In better advice, uh, when Donna goes away for a little while, Maddie, Maddie talks about how she saw Laura in the woods in some dreams and, um, gives Laura this advice to write about things in code. So like, how much does Maddie know? I mean, she doesn't seem to know anything in the series, but like at this point, it's it's kind of like wow, you know, like what is she seeing? Uh, <clears throat> and you know, she never said more about them because that's when Donna came back, and uh, maybe she did talk to Laura about it later, but it never made it into the diary, which kind of to me says she probably never did finish talking about it. So yeah, Maddie. Maddie will stay around a little bit longer, you know, like they try on clothes and, you know, they talk about how, how, um, you know, Laura's growing up and all this. Uh, but after that, um, she only appears two more times in the book as, I mean, not in person, but as a reference, um, after, after Laura was 14, um, Maddie sent her a dress for Christmas that, um, Bobby went absolutely wild for and, uh, talked to Laura for over an hour, which Laura was excited about, but we didn't get to hear what about. And, um, and then after Laura was 16 
and um, took stock of the 16 she never became. Um, you know, she never said Maddie at this at all. But then Maddie gets the gets uh, a message in her dream um, that Laura might have actually been trying to send her. Um, and then, you know, she says that. Um, well, that that's when she calls for Laura right after the abortion so like all this taking stock of being 16 you know like she never once mentions maddie but it's all in the margins and it pays off after she finally deals with the abortion but that's at 16 after laura's kind of come into her own uh sexually but like right here at age 12 um you know, it's like she wakes up, she has an orgasm in her sleep, and she absolutely loves it because it's actually a good feeling that wasn't attached to anything. And then there's another, um, there's another entry where she's like, uh, you know, she wakes up, she's 15. I mean, she's not 15. She's, uh, you know, it's like 5.15 in the morning or something. And, um, you know, she, she doesn't know what's going on. She's been in the woods. Um, you know, she'll, she probably, she has to be good. She can't be bad anymore. Um, so obviously something happened here. And I, I honestly think that entry is probably Bob's first, you know, full, uh, physical, uh, you know, rape assault on Laura at that time. And, um, right after that, she gets her first period, which, you know, of course, you know, it's like, this only complicates everything. You know, this can only make things worse. So, yeah, I think she's been assaulted before that and that things are not really going very well uh, with with Bob. And, um, you know, she the, the only respite she gets is a little bit further on, um, you know, while, you know, within within weeks of of that, um, she finally realizes that she can masturbate. You know, she finds the spot on her that, you know, the, the button or whatever she calls it. Um, and you know, it just feels good and there's nothing, nothing attached to that. And, you know, it's like, there's, there's finally this part of her sexuality that she can control and that she can explore. Um, but you know, yet even at the very end, she puts on this little tag, you know, just like, oh, I hope uh, I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. It's one of those kind of things where she worries that, you know, it's like, oh, could this be bad? I hope it isn't. I really don't want to be bad. I don't want this to be bad. You know, it's like she's she's in this push pull with sexuality, the entire diary. And honestly, it, when she turns 13 and starts writing in the diary again, she actually starts to explore the sexuality with Donna. Um, okay. So when she's 13, her entries begin, she has little trust in anything. She's, um, you know, she's talking about how, like, you know, she doesn't hold it against the diary, but there are people who will read you, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, there's, there's a betrayal of trust there. Um, and then she explores her sexuality alongside Donna with the Canadian boys, but the secrets end up splitting them up for most of the year until they finally reconcile toward the end. You know, they talk, they talk in the open about, you know, the unsure footing Donna and Laura have with each other after that, you know, they kind of come to explain why, um, why they hadn't been talking, you know, their insecurities with each other. And, um, that ends up, um, you know, there's a frank talk about it, which I'll go into a little bit. But what that ends up doing immediately after that is she 
ends up being able to speak frankly in the diary about what Bob has actually been doing. You know, it's like the, uh, the molestation, uh, the little cuts in her mouth. I mean, thing, things that are just too, too unspeakably bad for me to even want to voice. But yeah, it, it goes into the level of just how Bob has been like gradually more and more assaulting her as she gets older. But yeah, this, her, uh, Laura being 13, the honesty of what's happening comes to the forefront in this year. And, um, yeah, and, and Donna is a major focus with that. I mean, she, Laura comes right out and says that, you know, she can't tell Donna about her fantasies and nightmares. I mean, she literally says that before, um, before the, the time with the Canadian boys in, in the pond or the lake. Uh, <clears throat> and most of the time, you know, she's getting, you know, she, she's talking about Donna, like, you know, I want to be good like Donna, you know, so like <laughs> Donna is the straight laced path that, you know, she ends up straying from as she goes. But, um, then with the Canadian boys that they meet through the roadhouse, um, I mean, not, not through the roadhouse, through the bookhouse, um, Donna and Laura are like full in, you know, this is a secret between them. Um, and you know, it's like they, they, they try marijuana with the boys. Now I should point out, this is the scene in, um, in the fourth episode of season two that, uh, Donna recounts to Harold in her perspective. And you can kind of see how she kind of feels the magic of this night too. And, um, it really is Donna's idea to go skinny dipping. You know, they, um, she and Laura, you know, they, they bear their skin. They, they touch the boys a little bit. They, um, um, you know, that, well, Donna ends up going off to the side with one of the boys and has a deep conversation all night while Laura's still in the, in the lake. But, um, and th there's this, um, there's this secret nature of this night where or i mean of this day where they can like safely explore their sexuality here and um i mean it's a lot like the diary itself you know it's like it's it's these pages that is a secret safe space for laura to explore things safely um oh and and also um the the escalation of drugs happens here you know the harder liquor the um the marijuana for the first time laura's experiencing this through her best friend and these um these safe boys so um they have this really nice chance to actually you know support each other while they're while they're learning things about themselves and you know what they like and what they don't and uh the the problem is is that right after this basically donna and laura distance themselves from each other you know it's like the you know once they're outside the secret it it's like that time has passed and then you know all the all the reasons that they can come up with for shame um all that you know it's it's um it's easy to experience that when you're outside the bubble of this moment um so why, you know, like toward the end of this year, they come across the reason why, uh, why Donna felt a little unsure of herself then is because she thought that Laura was, you know, doing things with a boy before all this because she seemed so good at it. And, um, you know, the, 
you know, they're having a little secret that is a positive growing place. But then, you know, Donna thinks there's other secrets, too, which you know, there are. I mean, the, then, you know, can't tell Donna about her uh, her nightmares and her fantasies. You know, it's it gets the, Donna notices what's really there. And, um, you know, the the trust the the trust is hurt even though they reconcile at the end of the uh, of Laura's fortune uh, of Laura's 13th year um she's not really in the diary very much after this except as um you know like the the parts that we see of public Laura in here you know it's like they have nothing in common they you know they 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 obviously are talking to each other because she does keep coming up in like happenstance you know like her and mike you know doing this and that you know it's like oh she is so pure um so yeah i mean this is this is kind of where um laura continues on without her because you know they're just they're they're different people too but donna is definitely that symbol attached to the um the good part of laura the the um you know the i do good things laura which um you know she guilts herself over constantly i don't know um but it, as far as like laura being able to explore her sexuality she does so more from this point forward with bobby who finally shows back up in the diary laura's 14th year begins with her skipping out on a birthday party you know she's telling her mom that you know it's like okay in the next couple of years i'm i will do the parties but this year i want to figure things out and then come back absolutely fresh you know clear out my head get everything right um so she you know she goes to the forest where uh bob takes her for all the wrong things that ever happened to her and um you know, she um, she does mention that she's seeing Bobby here, but, you know, she declares that she's going to start fighting against Bob here, too. Now, one thing we see all the time with Laura in in year 14 is, um, you know, she definitely has control over Bobby. You know, the first thing we hear with him is that, you know, he gets her marijuana. Um, you know, then, then we see that they have this genuine uh, romantic encounter. Uh, where she had to squelch everything she was feeling because she wanted to protect herself and Bobby from Bob. Um, and um, this is where he starts to close off, meaning Bobby Briggs starts closing off. And um, then we um, then we see Laura exploring the parameters of what her actual situation is with Bob, too, uh, from the extent of what he does to her to like how he treats her, that kind of thing. Um, so we're getting closer to what what Bob actually is. Um, you know, she even starts asking, like, you know, who is he? You know, like she she's starting to acknowledge the fact that she doesn't know much about him. Um, <clears throat> and this happens all the while while Bobby is introducing her to cocaine and um, you know, parties at Leo, things like that. And it's probably things she's requesting of him, you know, find me something exciting. Now, this is all good information that we get about Bobby so that we can kind of understand where he began before we get the jerk in the series of Twin Peaks. But um, but he's introduced briefly as the hair-pulling boy in one of Laura's 12-year-old entries. Um, 
Ashley from the Twin Peaks Peaks podcast, which is absolutely wonderful, and I recommend you going back to see it. Um, she specifically said about the hair pulling, you know, the 12 year old uh, side of Bobby Briggs. She, she says she's really struck by the inclusion of the detail that Bobby, as a young boy, pulled Laura's pigtails. And Laura's visceral reaction to the notion that she and Bobby were going to get together and that this was a cute flirtatious thing he was doing. And the person propagating that is Norma, who we know is in an unhealthy relationship with Hank at the time. And that pigtail pulling is sort of a microcosm of the way that young girls are socialized to accept abuse. This is all Ashley saying this. On a spectrum of going from kind of the mundane things like pigtail pulling and nagging or whatever you want to call it, going all the way up to what Laura is experiencing with Bob. And that reminds me of how um, Jennifer Lynch, as I said earlier, was talking about, you know, just like how how women are socialized to compete against each other and things like that, like all of these things are like just baked into the structure of the reality that the readers had, um, you know, back when this book was new. And, you know, of course, that means Laura had it too. But, you know, it's like we all experience this sort of stuff as, as quote-unquote normal. Okay, so I've already said that at the beginning of this entry, or at the beginning of the 14-year-old entries, that it's all implied that, like, Bobby is doing these things that Laura is asking him to do, you know, the, um, the genuine sex, the even, um, the, the cocaine, the parties at Leo's, that kind of stuff. Um, and he's essentially a loyal puppy. Um, you know, it's like, he's, he's a well-meaning protector, you know, and it's like, how does he protect her by like protecting her wants, which is, um, you know, escalating her drugs, you know, things like that. I don't know. I mean, Bobby, Bobby seems to have a tenuous hold on Laura and he kind of knows it, you know, at that party with Leo, um, you know, it's like he, he's just recently started having sex with Laura at this point. And one of the first things he says to her at the party at Leo's is, um, you know, that guy's into some weird shit. Don't ever fuck him. You know, it's like he knows that Laura would entertain having sex with other people. And before I focus on Bobby specifically, I want to go to that party and um, point out when um, when there was that woman asking for $100 for somebody to get her off. Um, Laura is the one who does it. And um, what she does, you know, and this is her first experience with a woman. Um, you know, she the, the what she does is she goes up to this woman and she starts talking to her and giving her these safe boundaries. Um, you know, it's like there there's always communication. You know, it's like, do you want this? And you know, she gets her consent. Um, you know, she she talks about how you know um, all the people around her want that. You know, like they they want her. They think she's beautiful. Like I think she is. You know that all these things that. I mean, this is what Laura wants for herself, and she's giving it to this woman who has nothing to do with Bob. And, you know, it's like if if uh, if it can't happen for Laura, she's going to make sure it happens for others. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we're we're basically getting a glimpse of what positive sex is for Laura in this um, quote unquote safer situation. And her first time with Bobby seems like this too, down in the uh, the barn in Lowtown, which um, not, you know things things happen to them in Lowtown, which is like kind of the uh, the darker side. You know, it's like the um, the town version of the woods, it seems like. Yet this is where they go for Bobby and Laura in a barn to to have sex for the first time. But you know, of course, Laura can't let herself feel something so pure and positive with him because of all the stuff that Bob has messed her up about. In Ali Sharaba's article at 25YL, Bobby Briggs and Laura Palmer, A Love Story, I'm going to quote her about this. She says, Laura's sexual development was and could never be that of a normal adolescent girl. The abuse twisted up her perspective on sex, and she was never given a chance to develop sexual appetites and preferences untainted by the abuses she suffered. She had certain desires, for example, rough sex with older men, that she felt were wrong, but she had no control over the things she fantasized about. With Bobby, though, she wanted to make love. She wrote, I was, for the first time, beginning a sexual experience with interest and affection, a little control of my own. It wasn't just about herself, though. She wanted to make Bobby happy, too. She felt he deserved to be treated well for all that he did for her. But since she was terrified of the vulnerability that comes with the emotion of loving someone, all she knew how to do was give him the physical act of love. She was free with herself physically. But emotionally, she was in an impenetrable fortress. So, I mean, Sharaba pretty much sums this up in this article. I highly recommend it. There's this undercurrent of light in this book. And Laura always keeps track of it. You know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a poem toward the beginning of the book where she talks about, you know, her with, you know, like uh, Bob can see her light from the window. So, like, she recognizes a lot that she has light in herself and like she never completely loses track of that even even in her later entries when she's like you know despondent about pretty much everything um she'll also say later on that she'll cling to the bit of light and the <laughs> she'll cling to the bit of light left inside her when she decides officially to go into battle against bob after after she ruins this experience with bobby um, you know, she, she talks about light and she'll recognize it. Um, um, and usually it's not even, not even necessarily inside herself, but like she, she recognizes light regularly, but here she needs to laugh at Bobby and I'm quoting the diary until his eyes lost their light. So yeah, she believes in light, but she does not believe that she deserves the love that comes from light. In a lot of ways, this love that Bobby expresses to her after this afternoon, um, it's, it's almost like how when her period came, she said, this can only complicate things and this can only make things worse. And I feel like she feels that any kind of love that comes toward her can only make things worse too, or can only be dangerous. Now, I do agree with Sharaba that, um, you know, she'll go on to say that, um, you know, Laura keeps Bobby around in hopes that the good Laura can come out again one day and be with him. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that makes it really hard 
when she won't let good Laura come out for, you know, very good reasons, but she's not letting it happen. Now, on a, on a periodic basis, like even as late as, um, yeah, I mean, 15, at, at age 15, I think he says this too, that, um, you know, he, he feels like they're meant to be together, you know, even, even when they're stuck going through motions, um, and, you know, like almost having a pretend relationship, you know, he still feels that like they're kind of meant to be together, you know, around, around uh, that Christmas when Laura's 15, you know, they'll have another sexual encounter that bookends this one when, when they're 14. And, um, you know, it's, it's right after she admits the extent of her Coke addiction where, you know, like she'll say, you know, it's like, yeah, sometimes I would choose Coke over you, but sometimes I'd choose cocaine over everything. Uh, you know, it's like she can admit where she is with Bobby a lot more than pretty much anybody else. Um, <clears throat> you know, they, they come together a couple times to like genuinely share things. And um, they actually do have a tender moment where they do um, have that kind of deeper sex with, um, you know, just just like that first time. But just like then at um, at this point in time when she's 15 it's christmas time bob intrudes right after that too um and it's the um the only other time he comes back in full voice in the diary is after her abortion or i mean like around the time of her abortion when she's 16 and this time right after another experience with bobby she he, this is where he like goes on to i don't need anything i want things and um i mean laura basically will say why can't she experience these happy feelings without thinking that she might die because of them? So like every time she has a good moment with Bobby, she'll have a Bob intrusion uh, pretty much in her diary, um, you know, telling her why this can't possibly be happening. Now, after that Christmas at Laura's 15th uh, year, I mean, the, the relationship that she has with Bobby is, I mean, it, it's mostly in the margins. You know, it's like she, he, he's kind of just like Donna in this way, where they're they're the public Laura couple at that point. And, um, you know, we're, we're mostly outside looking in on that. So maybe he's in the tapes to Jacoby. Maybe he's in the um, the uh, quote unquote uh, good Laura diary. Um, but, yeah, before that. Um, I mean, it, Laura's first entry as a 15-year-old is when they go into Lowtown with Leo to get a whole bunch of drugs. And um, it's almost like this, um, you know, they, they basically almost all die at that, at that uh, drug deal. And, um, you know, they're, they're driving back and they find out that one of these people that they bought the drugs from is actually in the, the back of the truck and um, is, is going to shoot them from there, too as they're trying to get away and um bobby pulls out his dad's gun um and and shoots the guy off the back of the truck so i mean he essentially th this is bobby killed a guy this is the thing that james will mention in one of the early episodes of season one and um i know it gets retconned and fire walk with me but here this is that moment and um <clears throat> One of the things they talk about, you know, in addition to Laura's drug addiction around Christmas and in in Laura's fifteenth year, is that um, 
you know, that they'll they'll kind of finish coming to terms or in the diary, they'll finish talking about um, how he did essentially kill somebody. And, uh, you know, like through throughout this, you know, between between that instance where he killed the guy and that Christmas, um, you know, it's like we'll we'll find out that Laura does try to talk to him about it every once in a while. Um, they don't react to it immediately. It's like it's one of those time delay things. Like, oh man, that happened. Um, and like this is another one of those moments of guilt that kind of ties them together. Um, in in like an, an a negative frequency kind of thing. Um, you know, Bobby will get quiet. You know, he'll cry about it. Um, and then there's um there's that other way how how this stuff like kind of embody is embodied in a supernatural way not just in like bob following after bobby but um you know bob mentions that um about that that guy that bobby killed you know it's like uh, he he says that the the dead man gives bob a message to give to laura that you know there's a seat in hell waiting for her so like th this whole thing that um that she and Bobby shared is also another source of guilt. And, um, that, that seed in hell that Laura has, I mean, it's even referenced in the final entry when she's, um, very close to her death. You know, it's like, she still remembers this moment and it's, it's one of those things that she holds on to just like everything else. Now I talk about Bobby being with Laura as like her, her main person in, years 14 and 15 but honestly when when laura turns 15 she's mostly focused on leo and jacques you know bobby is there but it's leo jacques and ronette who are her strongest group and i'll get into ronette later but um um well i mean it the Diane podcast, when they were covering the diary, they basically say they really like the retcon to Leo and Jacques here. It, it really forms them into people. And I, I concur. I, I agree with that one. You know, Leo's kind of wild and everything, but like he actually has one of those connections to Laura. So we first meet him as the host of the sex and drugs party. Um, we'll, we'll find him taking her blindfolded into the woods it's clear that she likes a lot of what leo is you know it's like they both kind of have this woods connection and um honestly like she she goes in trusting him when he blindfolds her and takes her to that first uh, sex party where like she is the object in the sex party uh or the the main focus um Aiden from the Bickering Peaks podcast, and they now go by the Bix and cover Shakespeare, but you know, they definitely did a really great job covering the diary in one of their Twin Peaks episodes when they were Bickering Peaks. He kind of thinks that um, Laura pulled Leo further into the woods because kind of at the beginning, he's more of just like a uh, like a hedonistic experiencer. I mean, I, I wouldn't exactly call him akin to Jerry Horn per se, but you know, it's like they, uh, they seem to kind of work on appetite. Um, but then, you know, he gets into hitting Laura a lot. And, um, you know, after, after a certain point, like when Laura's 16, when she's 17, um, you know, it's like, he can't tell when Laura's, 
serious or whether she's like in one of their fantasy um, scenarios that they like to do when they're having sex with each other. Um, you know, it's like he, instead of um, Laura, like having trouble breathing, you know, he, he thinks, you know, it's like, Oh, she's really into it. And then he like hits her so hard that she gets a bruise. And even though Jacques says it in the series, Leo is the one that he's quoting when he says, bite the bullet, baby. So Leo becomes more and more unfeeling as this series goes on. And, um, yeah, I mean, so does Laura, essentially. So Leo is kind of the mile marker for where Laura is um, for, for a while in the diary. Now, in the diary, the one who keeps her a little bit safer in those situations is Jacques. And he won't notice right away either in those situations, but he does get there eventually. Um, he was always described as, you know, like an untraditional kind of guy that she would really be into. You know, I mean, she calls him, you know, it's like, oh, he's a fat guy, you know, it's like, but, but he's also always able to turn her on. Um, I mean, one of the things Jacques does is, um, you know, that, that same Christmas when, um, when Laura and Bobby have their tender moment, the same Christmas where she's dancing with Leland uh, for the last time in the book, you know, Jacques is there, actually. He's the one who gives her a present. Um, you know, he's, he's able to notice um, her outside of when he sees her, too. You know, it's like she, he, he gives her that secret. You know, it's like it's, it's in her bra. There's the wand she can... Uh, you know, she could play with, there's the Coke in there. Um, you know, it's like he, he knew what she would like and, you know, he, he put it in a little secret because that's kind of her deal. You know, that's something that she would like. Um, you know, it's like he, he, he likes catering to her needs too. He's kind of like a cross between Bobby and Leo in a lot of ways. And it's mostly with Leo and Jacques, um, you know, she finds she finds a copy of Flesh World, and I will talk about the Danielle part later. But um, she finds she finds Flesh World right at the beginning, like right after that um, experience in Lowtown with the drug deal that went south. Um, she um, she finds Flesh World. She wants to write a fantasy that will get published in there, and um, you know, she's like talking about it and working her way through it with Jacques and Leo most of the time. So she actually feels safe around these guys to explore herself. But the one of that group that really helps her and really seems to be a protector is Ronette. You know, it's like they, um, I mean, she's not there often in, in the story for a while. I mean, I, I think she's there the whole time that, because you know, she meets, uh, she meets Laura the same time that, uh, or I mean, we, in the diary, she shows up the same party with Leo. So, like, she's kind of in that circle though, anyway. But um, we don't really hear that she's connected a lot with, um, with Jacques and Leo until we get that note after that life-threatening experience where Laura was captured by those truckers and she had to find her way out. And, um, you know, Laura was basically... Um, outside of herself after that. I mean, she was a mess and she somehow makes it back to Leo's or Jacques apartment. Um, I, I, I think it was Jacques cabin, but anyway, like the, the one who wrote the note, um, after Laura kind of came to and found herself in her own bedroom, um, 
it was Ronette who was voicing, you know, it's like, okay, we were, you were such a mess, um, that we, uh, we tried to get you, um, together and we got you home. Um, if anybody asks about this, uh, do this, you know, it's like she, she was giving Laura kind of a script of like, you know, this is how to catch you up and how to keep you safe. And, um, you know, this is what we did. We hope you're okay. So like, uh, Ronette actually, um, I mean, she, you could tell like they have kind of like a, we're going to help each other out kind of thing. You know, Ronette is really good for Laura here and so good that eventually, you know, like we, we find out that, um, you know, they, they have a, a, a secret language for when they party, you know, it's like the, you know, saying this means, you know, bring Coke, you know, uh, saying this means I have it, you know, just come and enjoy it. Um, <laughs> there's, um, th- there's, there's, I mean, she, she essentially fills a role that, um, that Laura hasn't had in her life since Donna. And, um, you know, it's like, well, well, while Ronette kind of stayed in her own world and um, didn't really talk to, you know, she, she was kind of cutting herself off from Laura when Laura decided to be sober after she found out she was pregnant. Um, you know, not that Ronette knew that, but, um, but um, you know, it's like they, they have their worlds and Ronette does have her boundaries and everything. But, um, you know, when Laura decides to get back into the drugs, um, you know, Ronette welcomes her back, um, you know, about as well as you can. And, you know, the, they, they stay friends, you know, it's like they, they are the people who watch each other's back during partying and, um, you know, they have a lot of fun together and, um, that's pretty good for, for Laura and, um, the, you, they they never go into it because they don't really go into the uh, the working class people in Twin Peaks, you know, except for Shelley. But that's because she accidentally became a main character in casting. Um, <clears throat> so like we we never really hear about the uh, the people that you know, like we we don't hear about Ronette's life here, and um, about the only clue that we get that she and Laura have more in common is that. Um, you know, when Laura's talking about liking her body and, you know, like when she first met, um, Ronette at Leo's party, um, we hear about Ronette's sad eyes. So like, we know there's something in Ronette's, um, head that we're not getting access to, but we also can kind of see the road she's on. But regardless, I think Laura is good for her too. and. Ronette is definitely good for Laura here. Um, a good piece of the support system, even if it's in Laura's secret world. Now, while all this is happening, when, when Laura's 15, um, you know, while she's doing the exploring her sexual fantasies in a safe way, you know, quote unquote safe way with Leo and Jacques, um, you know, while she's partying with Ronette, um, the uh, the flesh world stuff is almost always paralleled with Johnny Horn, and that's where that's where we really do see a lot of Laura's light side, and um, it's it's it, as segmented as um, or as car as compartmentalized as Laura keeps herself. It's really interesting to see how she is with Johnny Horn, 
but um we're we're gonna take a bit of a break to um hear some some uh we're going to take a break to hear more from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network, and then we'll get back to Johnny. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Welcome back. It's uh, time to start talking about Johnny Horn. <clears throat> One of the few bright spots of this whole book. Uh, he, he Most of his appearance is... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> most of his appearances happen when Laura is 15 and 16 years old. Um, and uh, most of them are paralleled with... Um, with Laura talking about writing fantasies for uh, for Flesh World, so when she's talking about the the fantasies in Flesh World, she's exploring her sexuality in a non-judgmental space because you know uh, Jacques and Leo are you know all about whatever <laughs> you know, it's a, you know they're they're all in for whatever she wants to experiment with. So that's actually a good safe place for her right there, and. Um, it, it's kind of nice and it, it's telling that it matches up with Johnny because when she's with Johnny, she basically gets to exist in a non judgmental, uh, love tuned wavelength. Um, so yeah, I mean, she's, um, she's actually, even though this is the most dangerous, most depressing parts of, uh, of Laura's life in, in this age range, 15 and 16, um, it's, it's still, a nice um a nice positive angle to things um and and um i know with with johnny there's no sexuality talked about at all um but um i mean essentially what she's doing here is sure the diary you know lets her lets her express herself but um as that one um guest of the uh the the log cast um podcast um she was saying that um you know the diary can't express love it can't uh show like where her dis you know cognitive dissonances are actually dissonances so um you know johnny can't do that either but he can give back love which is a step up from where the diary is uh the first time we see johnny horn is when laura's 12 um or actually it's um it's at the beginning of when she's 13 um she learns that th this is the one where she learns that Ben gave Laura Troy and not her dad and Johnny happens to be there and um he seems to be about the only welcome addition to that whole thing um Laura describes Johnny as slow and older than I am but has mentality of a small child which she says that's what the doctors say about her and she wonders if he's chosen not to speak this whole time because it's more interesting to listen. Um, one connection that I make is is Johnny's actually in in this kind of you know the the way he just kind of radiates a piece to her. Um, it's kind of like how Andy is, the uh, deputy Andy or or Cooper Dougie, and um, 
you know, Andy gets invited to talk to the fireman and, um, you know, Cooper Dougie, uh, basically changes everybody who he meets, uh, changes their lives for the positive. So to be in that kind of a category is a pretty good thing. Now, one thing that's consistent with the series that we've seen up to this point is he definitely does live in his own world. And, um, I know L talked about it in the pilot, but, um, you know, obviously there's some kind of trauma and neglect in his past. Um, but that's not really explored here. I mean, the effects are explored because, um, when, when, um, Laura's 15, she does see Johnny Horn again and thinks that he seems, uh, and these are her words, lifeless, unattended to sad. And, um, that's when she decides to tutor him three times a week. You know, she's, um, uh, again, this is like, I mean, you know, even the lady at the party, you know, the uh, Leo's party. I mean, she basically treats others that need help the way she'd like to be treated. It's it's that that um, that projecting onto others what she needs and, um, you know, giving others what she's not believing she deserves herself. Now, from this tutoring arrangement. Um, you know, she gets money and she's happy about that part. But the real value, she says, is he doesn't judge no matter what she does when she's not around him. Uh, doesn't even want to sleep with her. There's no abuse, no touching, no talking. The only thing he really wants from her is for her to read to him. Um, he loves fairy tales. So, you know, the Peter Pan that um, uh, Robert Bauer brought with him on set, the actor of Johnny Horn. Um you know, it, it kind of lines up with, you know, this love of fairy tales. And um, Laura in the book says Sleeping Beauty is his favorite. So, you know, there's another dreamer situation uh, of somebody like completely unable to wake up. Now, here she explains how she slows down to explain things that he doesn't understand. And, you know, it's like he'll he'll like perk up when he doesn't get things. So, like, he's actually pretty, pretty with it around Laura, which is a another good sign that, you know, something positive frequency is happening. And, um, you know, th there's that savant kind of thing going on, too, where, you know, he shoots arrows and his aim is absolutely true and it hits the target, you know, bullseyes every time or, you know, close to every time anyway. Um, now... Laura does say she needs to do lines to maintain her patience. Um, so, I mean, there, there is that undercurrent still, you know, it's not like Laura's like, you know, Oh, the light switch is on, you know, she's nothing but, you know, light and gold, you know, she's, um, she's still Laura Palmer, even in this side of things. And, um, you know, there in, in that, um, in that first explanation, of you know how she um how she does tutor johnny she says that she did a bob impression once um she says it's the worst she's ever felt and she apologized until he forgave her which um you know it kind of matches up with him having trauma in the past but he really does have the ability to forgive her and he does with based on later things in this book um the the thing in the margins that I'm not sure about with that is, you know, she talks about doing a Bob impression and obviously she'd have enough material to do a Bob impression, but is it her actually embodying Bob? You know, like when, when she, when she gets in that, um, black and white kabuki makeup in uh, fire walk with me at Harold's place where she says, you know, fire walk with me. And, um, you know, like w was she channeling Bob that way where like, 
she actually did have a little bit of Bob um, coming through her at the time. It's a very interesting question. Uh, and, and obviously, there's no way to really answer that. There's a good case to be made for the supernatural seeping in, or if she's just, you know, mirroring the behavior that she's learned. Now, the day that she absolutely learns that, um, that Flesh World is ready to publish people's fantasies and that she wants to write for it, um, that's a day where she takes Johnny outside in sunlight. I mean, it's, it's, uh, another connection of light. Um, and in this day when, you know, she's thinking about, oh, she's going to get published and doing, you know, exploring all this, this side of her, um, she, she's in a good enough mood where she just tells Johnny any story after another, she babbles on without judgment. And, you know, she doesn't say exactly which stories, but the fact that Johnny really wasn't paying attention to anything but her vocal tone, um, you know, she probably said a lot. And um, honestly, it'd be a lot like dumping your your stories onto a therapist in a way. It's like freeing to get it out of you, uh, even if there's no reaction or a response back. Besides, um, you know, his, his <laughs> Laura says Johnny's only response is joy. And at the end of that trip, after after Sylvia comes back in, I think this is her only appearance in the, the diary, um, she basically, uh, Laura is in there with Johnny, and he says, like, the first sentence I think she's probably ever heard him say besides yes and Indian, uh, those are his, like, two favorite words. Um, she said, or <laughs> he tells her, I love you, Laura. Now, as usual, Laura is very proud of him. You know, she says, you know, this is a leap for him. But then, you know, she says this is the highest compliment she's ever received. And um, I mean, that it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, somebody who usually doesn't speak and only radiates joy and like comes out enough to say that they love you. I mean, how you, you can't get much better. Next time we hear from Johnny, it's. Um, Right after the Meals on Wheels arc kind of starts, um, Harold's already been introduced. The Josie English lessons begin too. And um, that time in the, um, what do you call it? That time in the uh, double R ends with her going to the Horns place, uh, Bobby dropping off Coke because, you know, you still have to have that Laura participating. And, um, you know, she's basically reading stories and eating ice cream with, with Johnny all night. Sounds like a pretty good day overall. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a quick tangent on Meals on Wheels. Um, that day at the Double R, um, it kind of begins from jealousy, honestly, or competition, I should say, from Shelly. And um, I know I haven't said much about Shelly, and I'm probably still not going to say much, but... Um, you know, there, there's this competition between Laura and um, and Shelley because they're both seeing Leo, even though Shelley doesn't, uh, she doesn't seem to know. Uh, so Shelley's treating this this woman uh, fairly nicely. It's an older woman. Uh, she, uh, what do you call it? The 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 woman's there eating pie and coffee. You know, positive frequency indicators if I ever saw any. And then uh, Shelley is the one who helps let her out the door. And, um, 
you know, this is when Laura talks to Norma and uh, Laura had, uh, Laura had just started drinking coffee in this moment. And pretty much everybody knows from Cooper and the sheriff's station that, you know, if you're drinking coffee, you're on a positive frequency too. So, um, you know, sure, there's the Shelly angle to it, but, you know, all, all sides of Laura need to be represented when she makes big things happen. Um, you know, Laura's watching Shelly help this woman, and uh, Norma says, lots like her in town and no one to help them. You know, Laura decides to go into co uh, competitive mode, I think she says. And, um, you know, it's always easier to focus on other people to help. And um, honestly, this is after after everything happened with Jupiter and Troy. So, you know, it's like she's supposed to be taking care of those animals when she had them. but. Um, you know, it's like now that she's kind of grown a little bit and gotten things like Johnny Horn to say, I love you. Um, she's kind of able to take that next leap and, um, you know, focus on helping people who also need help. And again, she's projecting what she wants people to do for her onto other people in, in this case, a positive direction. It's basically showing that, you know, as she's fighting back against Bob, she actually is growing her light, too, even though she might not necessarily recognize that's what's happening. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Meals on Wheels, that's where Harold comes from. And, um, you know, she talks about him. He was a, he became a shut-in overnight one time, and, uh, you know, he doesn't really know how, um, but, you know, he can't leave his house. Um, unlike Johnny, Harold can speak to her. He is aroused by her. Uh, fearful when she approaches, uh, when, yeah, you know, when she approaches Harold. So, you know, he's, he's kind of almost like Johnny's, um, darker side in a way, you know, it's like he, he, he operates from fear and, um, and because Harold comes from more of a fear frequency, um, basically, I mean, Laura says that, you know, he's kind of like prey and, you know, sometimes she plays with him and, um, Bob impressions, impressions, quote unquote, um, show up there as well. And, uh, you know, we saw in Firewalk with me that the Bob impression really did come through her, um, for, re you know, from a Bob's, uh, a Bob point of view in that movie. So I, I suspect that that's, most likely what the impression is um and you know she hates herself later um after she does things but i mean she uh, eventually as you know she gets older it's i i think when she's 17 she actually rapes harold and it's not ideal at all um and you know she hates herself for it but she also admits that it makes her feel strong so again you know both sides of laura coming out uh, I don't know. It's, it's not ideal, but, um, that's kind of where the meals on wheels, um, part of the book travels to, but you know, on the, on the, on the more, on, on the more forgiving side, I guess, um, Harold does seem to forgive her enough where she considers his place to be the safest place for her to, um, to give the diary when she knows she's on her way out. Now, going back to Johnny, the last time we hear about him in the diary at all, I mean, we know it keeps going based on, you know, how Johnny reacts to um, Laura not coming, um, you know, from the pilot on. But, um, 
you know, the last time we see him in the diary, he actually leads right into Jacoby because Jacoby is watching I mean, they're um they're all shooting arrows together. Um or watching Johnny shoot arrows together. Um I mean, probably what's going to happen is Johnny comes up in the audio tapes that Laura records for Jacoby, because that's more of the uh, the positive leaning, more honest part of where Laura puts her experiences um, once that starts up. Yeah, now Jacoby is really skeezy, and I mean, there's elements of that here too, but there's a lot of actual growth that Laura's going through in this, and um, it comes directly from her experiences with Johnny Horn, which she decided to do on her own. So, you know, this is definitely the, um, the lighter side of Laura's soul coming through in a way. And, um, it's, uh, it's like the, why she's fighting Bob part is growing her light. And, um, you know, it's to help out people like Johnny and, you know, the meals on wheels people and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So, um, okay. Again, um, the diary, is a place where she can express herself and Johnny Horn can give back love. And then Jacoby, the next part of this chain, um, he can point out the cognitive distortions as distortions. And, um, that is massively important. Um, and, and Laura's honest with him to a, a large degree, I assume, because, uh, because she says that, Jacoby's fallen in love with two Lauras. Um, he, he doesn't find it, um, you know, negative at all. He finds it enticing and honest. Um, and then um, uh, Cheryl Lee in the audiobook especially reads this with such disdain that he doesn't mock her pain. He accepts it. And, you know, like that, that's just so ugly to Laura. Like why in the world would you accept her pain? Um, and, um, you know, I mean, this is just her, um, you know, coming up against, um, you know, her belief system, uh, for the first, you know, opposition to her belief, her real belief system for probably the first time in a long time. Uh, first time since Bobby, I would imagine, and, you know, even then, Bobby's not a trained therapist. He probably just went with whatever she was, you know, uh, pushing him to do. Uh, so, um, you know, Laura will tell him, uh, will tell Jacoby things. But she says he always recognizes that, and I'm quoting Laura, the lighter part of Laura never wanted to do the um, the things that Laura would say to him that, to shock him and you know, turn him on her essentially. I think she's trying to force that. Um, so yeah, the, um, the lighter part of Laura never wanted to do these things in the first place. You know, another honest thing she really comes out and says is she hates Jacoby for never confirming her worst fears that she's become like Bob. And it's telling about what their sessions must be like, because at the very end of that entry, she says, maybe it's like he says it is. I have forgotten how to be loved. Now, right before she met Jacoby, this is when she decided to do that public Laura diary, the one that um, that um, Hawk and um, and Leland, um, you know, talk over in Laura's room in the pilot. Uh, <clears throat> so she's already kind of split herself in that way, and um, now that she's talking with Jacoby, she ends up. Uh, he he gives her this hot pink tape recorder. Uh, so, um, 
you know, she gets to say it in, in the tapes and then, um, she listens to them back before she gives them to Jacoby. So she says, listening to the tapes makes her feel like the problems spoken on them are not her own. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, this is the, the cognitive distortions, you know, it's like, she's starting to even see that like what she's talking about isn't necessarily the, like, even the most real or the most, the, you know, like she's not as attached to them once she puts them in a recording, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, at this point, this is when Laura apologizes for not writing more in the diary. And, you know, she promises to do more because that's just her, you know, it's like, there's this thing. She says, there's this thing that, you know, she promised to do. So she has to do it. I mean, what's happening in practice is she needs the diary less. You know, it's not just that, she doesn't have time because I mean, she's doing meals on wheels. She's doing, um, you know, the, 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 the English lessons with Josie. She's doing, uh, the Johnny Horn tutoring sessions. You know, she's, uh, she's still partying like crazy. Um, you know, it's like she can make time if she needs to. Um, but she doesn't need to as much, which is really great that she's got this outlet now. The last time we hear about Jacoby is uh, Jacoby specifically asks her to talk about James and the comment that she said that she went sober because of him. So we get this, um, this small glimpse of James. You know, she's known him a long time, um, but, you know, he's never made the diary, which means he's kind of on that positive frequency that um, that Laura can't really deal with very often because, you know, um, she doesn't feel that's her authentic self necessarily. Um, you know, it, it doesn't fit in with protector Laura who writes in this diary. Um, is it because she wants to keep James safe? Um, probably, probably that's part of it. Um, but yeah, at the end here, she says that she fell in love with James's purity. And, um, a direct quote says, if I was strong enough, I could let James take me out of this darkness. And, uh, I mean, she basically says that he's her last chance for light, which, um, I mean, it seems like she's not noticing her light here, but, um, but she doesn't take the, t the, the way out anyway, because she basically says she doesn't deserve that. Why is he so good for Laura? I mean, Zan from Ghostwood podcast, uh, basically put it the, the clean, I mean, the, uh, the, um, clearest way. Uh, she says that James would do anything to help Laura and Bobby would do anything for her in this same diary entry. Um, she basically, th this is the second one before the end. So like, this is her kind of, um, framing everybody like, you know, her relationships, um, right before she died for the whodunit section. And I'll talk about that later, but, um, you know, it's like, what is, what, does she want um one of the things she wants is that even though james is so good for her she wants this relationship to remain a secret and honestly i think that's probably protecting her from bob kind of situation protecting her from bobby too honestly um but um you know donna's the one who knows the secret besides james and um uh, you know, that it, it goes right back to that whole thing where, you know, it's like, this is why Donna thinks that everything has to be secret 
you know, about her investigation into uh, Laura, you know, like when she says, you know, it's like, um, hi, Audrey, we're in the bathroom, but um, I need to make sure that you swear to secrecy about this before we start talking about Laura, that kind of thing. She does that a lot in season one. And um, I kind of think it's all cues from Laura at this point that um, Donna got trained, that everything has to be secret. Okay, so that was the grand majority of Laura's support system. But, um, but you know, what, what's suppo- what happens in this book where Laura is supposed to be the support system for others? Um, <clears throat> and that pretty much brings us to Troy and Jupiter. So I'm going to start with Jupiter. Um, basically, Jupiter fills the same kind of role that Johnny Horn did um, up until Laura was 13. And um, that means that there was about a year, year and a half where um, where she didn't have anybody to talk to about this kind of stuff, except for like maybe, um, you know, Donna and Bobby. I mean, that's when she kind of starts a relationship with Bobby. but. Um, she didn't have anybody in her corner at that point who could just, you know, exist with Laura and be completely 100% non-judgmental, which um, Laura specifically points out about Jupiter. Um, you know, when when um, when she says that Jupiter got hit by a car, she's like, you know, I didn't write about him much, but uh, he was a true fan of vanilla ice cream, you know, stuff like that. You know, they they obviously hung out and. Um, Laura, Laura gave him a lot of her, um, information, you know, like just expressing herself that way. Uh, you know, he, he was a good partner and a companion and whatever. And, um, you know, it's like the, the only thing Jupiter ever gave her back was love, which again, he's, he's kind of in a similar, um, emotional space as Johnny Horn this way. Um, so Laura was 13. It's one of her first entries as a 13 year old. And she talks about how Jupiter was hit, you know, um, uh, Jupiter like chased a mouse out of the house and got hit by a car. Uh, so the mouse, does that connect to the rat dreams? Um, you know, was Jupiter being a protector and like chasing away the things that Laura had to hurt herself to protect herself from, um, you know, before they heard her, I mean, it, I don't, I don't think this is an explicit thing, but I think there's a certain rhyme to it where we kind of feel the same kind of emotions and like, it kind of like, you know, I mean, it's before the rat dream, but it kind of gives the impression of this was the kind of role that Jupiter had in Laura's life. And, um, this hit and run driver just took off, never showed, you know, it's like, all, all we know is that Jupiter died in the street with Laura. Like he took his final breaths with her when she approached him. Um, and, um, like Christian for manners and madness, I, I kind of feel like Leland did it. Um, you know, and when, when Leland gets home later and starts yelling and screaming about the person who did this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it kind of feels like, I mean, you know, knowing, knowing it's Bob and, you know, it's like Bob might be like, oh, she's mine. You can't have her cat. You have, you hold, you hold the special place that I'm supposed to, or that no one is supposed to. Um, I, I kind of feel like Leland, you know, it's like, you know, doth protest too much, you know, or whatever that expression is. Um, 
you know, at the time, Laura's just barely 13. She could not understand why the car wouldn't stop and own up to what happened. I mean, they're like the world itself has this complete lack of empathy, which just reinforces all her negative perspectives on the world at the time. And then we get another cat related situation where, um, you know, Laura's first entry of being a 15 year old, I mean, granted it's November. Um, so, you know, she's been 15 for a few months at this point, but, um, this is the one where she goes into low town with Leo and Bobby. Um, you know, they, they barely get out with their lives and some Coke and, uh, Bobby kills somebody on the way out or, you know, the, the guy in the truck bed, but yeah, so there's all of that. And, um, they come down by taking a lot of Coke and then Laura decides to go off on her own driving, um, to like pick up something in a, you know, a quick stop or whatever you want to call it. I, I think that's what she said. It was like a convenience store she's trying to get to. Um, so, you know, she's, she's high as a kite. Um, she's driving, she sees flesh world for the very first time and reaches down for it. And I mean, you know, eventually we know that this leads to her exploring her sexuality as much as making money. And, uh, you know, the, the, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, there, there are directions with flesh world that are both good and bad. And, um, this is the beginning of that journey, which is really not great because, when she looks down to pick up the the magazine, she ends up hitting a cat, and you know she's she's now the she's now the person who killed a girl's cat, and um, this girl Danielle comes out, and um, you know Laura actually stops. You know she gives Danielle the respect and acknowledging the severity of what happened. You know Laura knows because I mean it's 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 kind of a, a trauma cycle. In, in a real way for Laura, but, um, you know, Danielle, she, she forgives Laura because Laura understands the severity and the gravity of what has just happened. And, um, you know, she, she tells Laura, I think you're nice. Um, you know, and she does forgive her. Um, and you know, th this could have closed that kind of cycle with Laura. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, she, she did the thing that, the person who did it to her could not do for any reason. It would have done that for Laura, except, you know, months earlier at the end of her 14th year, she lets Troy go. You know, she's not feeling together enough uh, to take care of anything. So she forces Troy to leave the stables and go free. And of course, we know Troy's fate will not be good at this point, but I'm going to take a bit of a, a side path for like what what horses mean in in Twin Peaks that we know of. And I'm not going to talk about the white horses in um, in part 18 of season three, because that's just a little bit too ambiguous. I mean, it seems more like they're dream guardians for um, the Carrie Page Laura. And, um, you know, whatever, whatever that means, we'll discuss then, but it seems like it's been a little bit, uh, th there's an extra level there. Um, but what a white horse means in the show and, you know, the, the white horse appears after the diary. So is it a retconning of what Troy means or is it just coincidence that it's horses in the first place? It's tough to know what to say about it because I mean, if, if you look at the way that, you know, 
Laura could be a dreamer. Um, she might be projecting horses as a certain kind of a talisman. And um, I know Jasmine over at uh, uh, Damn Fine TV, she just said that about the Part 8 uh, connections with horses, that um, the horses kind of feel like a talisman. And then there's the thing that... Um, that uh, David Lynch said about the jumping man, that the jumping man was a kind of a talisman. So like all of these things in lodge space, like have these values as visual icons, just as much as anything else. So, um, yeah, I mean the, the horses that appear, um, they appear to Sarah, both in fire walk with me and in episode 14, when, um, you know, when there's an unseeable action, nearby that is catastrophic you know the death of maddie um the the rape of laura by bob when she finally can see that it's leland um oh yeah and then um cooper in part two of season three or um you know the the 2017 twin peaks um there's a horse in the distance in the red room you know the the darkness behind the curtains when the curtains blow away there's a white horse back there too um that kind of feels similar to the way sarah sees it though and um in the access guide of all places and i'll go into this during our access guide uh episode one day <laughs> but um there's this white moose um that's discussed and i'm pretty confident based on the material here that it's um that it's fulfilling the same role that the white horse does later. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from my, um, uh, my access guide article. I think it's called the, uh, the only, the only access guide resource you'll ever need because I go, I go deep into the book there. It, it's like a tour for people who, uh, can't find it. But yeah, so the part about the white moose legend, it says, Legend has it the moose was the lone survivor of 50 moose that were exterminated by, by the several dozen trappers that trapped them. Now, drained of his brother's and sister's blood, the white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. There's a lot in the legend of the white moose. As lodge denizens seem to take different shapes depending on who's observing them, I wouldn't be shocked if that meant that the white moose and the white horse weren't one and the same. I love that the melancholy and forgiving white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. Was the horse, at least during the days of Twin Peaks' original production, less a drug metaphor and more a witness to validate and understand someone's pain? I now want to go every uh, go through every scene the horse is in and decide whether it could be a presence of compassion, much like Carl Rod was for the unnamed mother in season three. So, yeah, I mean, a, a symbol of compassion for those who can't really deal with the truth. Um, honestly, that's a little bit of how Troy is with Laura. So with Troy, he's Laura's best 12th birthday present. Um, you know, Laura names him and there's that, that line about when a horse is given, they share everything, even a birthday. So they share everything in this book in a lot of ways, you know, both they, they begin, both of them have optimism. Um, both are given to her by someone else through her father, who is the public face, um, and, you know, in this case, it's Ben Horn, not Bob. Um, 
Ben is a friend of the family. He's always showered attention on her. And um, I feel like that line about um, Ben Horn being a friend of the family, um, you know, like in the show, it'll say, you know, he, he Bob is a friend of her father's, like that kind of thing. Like it's, um, it's one of those actual ways to misdirect uh, viewers who might be reading this book before the reveal. Random details. Uh, Troy was initially too young to, to ride and, um, you know, like to, to basically like too young to be a proper horse. Um, and Laura's so young that like, you know, she hasn't even had her period yet. So she's too young to be dealing with things like Bob. Laura goes to the stables for solace. You know, she likes to take care of Troy and it's kind of almost like a meditation area. Um, and um, when she's with Troy is when she remembers the dream with the log lady. So, um, you know, there, there's a safe place with Troy. Um, even though as, as the days go on, Troy ends up becoming a cover for when Laura wants to be away from the house and she's doing something a little more illicit. Uh, <clears throat> so we see Laura caring less and less for Troy as she's caring less and less for herself. Um, and, you know, at the end of Laura's 14-year-old entries, I already mentioned it, but this is about, like, she she and Troy haven't had um, their lives uh, intertwined for even three years at this point. And um, paraphrasing her mentality when she wrote the entry about uh, letting Troy go, um, she's hooked on coke, incapable of choosing right over wrong, depressed, feeling futile, uh, like everything she makes contact with, will have contact with Bob. With Laura in this state of mind, Troy didn't deserve the life he had and was not free. So, again, she's projecting how she feels about herself onto her horse. And, you know, she thinks her horse needs to be free, too. And, you know, if she can't be, um, at least Troy can be. So she forces Troy out of a stall. And, you know, she even talks, you know, heartbreakingly about how, uh, how Troy even tried to look back, you know, like, what, why, why? Um, so she's traumatizing her horse right here. And, um, you know, this is, this is right before she starts going to low town and, you know, doing drug deals and like just doing all these incredibly scary things like, um, you know, uh, uh, get, getting abducted by a bunch of truckers. I mean, there's all these things that she finds herself in danger of because she's completely unanchored from her own safety net with her parents and everything else, you know. Um, both she both she and Troy are completely running free, and it's not good for either of them. Um, you know, Troy's Troy's support is intentionally removed by Laura, just like her, uh, just like her parents intentionally remove their support of her in a lot of ways. Um, they're both forced to be free. And, um, when Ben Horn calls the, calls Laura to deliver the news, um, he says that, um, Troy was unable to find food and had to be shot twice by border patrol. And you know, border on on the the line between um, between Lodge and uh, the world, you know, between Canada and uh, and and Washington. I mean, there's all these places, and of course, the border patrol is the one 
who has to shoot Troy. And Laura's reaction to that is, everywhere I look tells me I am such a bad, evil person. If I wasn't so terrible, we could have gone out to the field together. And um, I think, you know, the, the only reason why Laura didn't share the same fate as Troy right around then is because after she had that experience with the truckers, she made it to her support system. She made it to people who actually would take care of her. And, you know, Ronette gave the note that was very specifically caring. And um, I honestly think they probably saved her life that night. So, I mean, besides the obvious um, heartbreaking nature of Laura's horse having to be shot, um, it's it's got that extra level of bad because it's a step back from where she was when she was talking to Danielle about, about her cat. Um, you know, it's like she couldn't tell Ben ever anything because she knows that it would be trouble if she owned up to the fact that she's the one who let Troy loose. So, so Laura's cycle with her own animals is basically, with Jupiter, she was the known victim. With Danielle's cat, she was the known perpetrator. And with Troy, she was the known victim and the unknown perpetrator. And she became the exact same person who killed Jupiter in that she she drove by without saying anything. You know, it's like no no humans know why the person who let Troy loose did it. And again, like my theory that Leland is the one who hit Troy, I mean, who hit Jupiter, um, it's a family member who did it. And, you know, that's another um, subtle nod to thematic rhyming that it's Leland who's doing everything to Laura. Now, this is definitely a rock bottom moment for Laura. I mean, you know, part of her seems to die with Troy in a lot of ways, but Honestly, after this is when she starts seeing Johnny for real. Um, you know, it's like there, there's a certain amount of light that does seem to happen from this moment. Like, you know, it's almost like Laura's turning part of herself around, too. Um, you know, it's like part of her starts to want to restart for the better. And, um, you know, it's like the soberness even begins after this. Um, though it's probably related to other things she isn't writing about. but. Um, at this point, it's almost like she does a little bit of die and fix her heart at the same time. Now, one of the most regularly occurring things in the diary is um, the fact that Laura shares dreams in here. And I mean, sometimes it's coded poetry as well, which um, I may be referencing here and there, but they um, they kind of occupy the same space. And it gives, it gives the internal headspace of Laura to us. Um, you know, at a thematic level. And um, sometimes they um, they cloud over, like, physical events that are happening. But, um, yeah, the, the, the thing that I am most focusing on is how Bob started out as a dream to Laura. I mean, I'm not saying it's exactly the same as how Bob started out as a dream for Dale, and then he's eventually taken over by Bob, but... Um, it's it's not entirely dissimilar. So, uh, yeah. So, let's break it down. Um, Bob is named in the first entry. And, you know, she does talk about dreams right there. Um, but, um, 
a few a few entries later, um, even before Maddie enters the book, um, there's this um, there's this unknown man. Like she's never seen this man before, apparently, um, and he has long hair and a beard. And you know, he raises his hands and stops the wind. Um, I kind of wonder if this is Bob getting his shape. You know, like his has he always been that shape for Laura or did it kind of come from that dream or is it that thing where like she doesn't remember Bob's shape you know she knows him by name but like maybe maybe she can't remember him in a physical way until this dream and then like it's not even him quote unquote but yeah I mean Laura will talk about I mean, you know, she'll describe things that happen in her dreams. And then um, around the same time, she'll have confusion about having nights in the woods. Um, And eventually she gets to the point where, you know, she's like, I think that this is real. Um, You know, it's like she's she's coming to the conclusion that, you know, maybe it isn't a dream. Maybe it's uh, Maybe it's like a masking memory, except that she doesn't see it that way. She sees it as like a real reality. So like were the dreams her basically experiencing the after effects of of a reality at at the only level that she could process it? Um or was it Lodge Space introducing itself to her the only way it knows how to? I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to go through this. Um you know, there, there's there's all these people that she connects to through dreams too. Um, you know, it's like is she manifesting her dreams into Sarah's dreams? You know, like that they, they have a connection. Like, are are they connected to Lodge Space or are they connected to um, Laura's manifestations? As you know, as if like she were the dreamer and she's making her mom have these dreams and she's making Maddie have these dreams. You know, I mean, she calls it a call for help after her abortion to Maddie, and um, you know, it's like, oh, she heard my call for help. You know, it's like, is is Laura a strong sender? in like all the important ways where you know maybe like in in a lynchian descriptor laura is the one you know that that kind of angle it's it's even here in the diary to be had if you want to go that way um and you know her possibly being a dreamer did she basically manifest um her events in fire walk with me to Cooper. And, um, honestly, did she manifest Cooper from the dreams? And like, he's kind of a projection from her. There's, you know, there's, there's no way to verify any of this. And you can't really, you can't really go too far when you're, uh, when you're thinking this way, because there's room for it. Is it mind and body hand in hand? Um, with intuition and intention like there's all these things that we'll know about cooper later and um you know it's like did he learn it from laura or is he part of laura um yeah and then there's the way that um like like mark frost comments about um you know bob basically being a vampire archetype where you know it's like he could be he could be this spirit being trying to get the Garmin Bosia or whatever else that they need. And, um, you know, he's, he's like a parasite from this higher level. I mean, it, it all flies. 
And I mean, sure, the dreams can be nightmarish, but there are some positive ones too. Like on um, when Laura's in her 16th birthday, like she's describing um, herself, her life, um, when she's finally 16 in the diary. And, you know, she's talking about, She's talking about herself as a 12-year-old, and she's saying, you know, the the girl who got this diary, you know, um, before the nightmares, um, she says, and I'm quoting, I still had dreams, hope that anything was possible. I cannot tell you how special and valuable a daydream is. I don't, I didn't miss it until it was gone. Without it, I became cold paranoid, unfriendly, and open to all sorts of things. And, um, I mean, like, you can't get much more clear than that, that dreams are important in both a negative and a positive direction. And um, I know I mentioned that with uh, characters like Nadine and the season one stuff that I've been talking about and how, like, eventually dreams are there to, you know, hold on to you and heal you. Um, kind of like what Protector Laura is talking about being for um, for the public Laura that she's trying to keep innocent and safe and, um, you know, protected until she can come out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, dreams do that to people, too, where they're good things. And uh, like like one of the daydreams, as I'm going to call it, is... Um, when um when Laura and Donna and the Canadian boys are um smoking marijuana and um you know just just talking and enjoying this weird daydream where they're talking about a giant and all these little universes uh stuck on his sweater like lint. Um so you know, like there's like that multiversal cosmic perspective and um they were all in a safe place where they were exploring things and um you know, probably wishing and hoping all of them. Um, so they, um, they were in a mindset and what do they see? They see a giant. Is it the giant? I don't know, but that character had probably already been filmed. Uh, the, the Carl striking character in that season two premiere before Laura, uh, before Jennifer Lynch was done writing this book. So I wouldn't be shocked if that's a nod. But, you know, whether it was a nod or not, it was a uh, positive, I mean, uh, what's the word? Exploration for, um, you know, for all these people. And it's based in trust. And, um, yeah, I mean, dreams are good for people sometimes. And, you know, they are calls for help, just like what, you know, Maddie can hear. Um, and and Margaret heard it, too. Um the the scene with the log lady at fourteen hundred River Road, um, Diane podcast basically calls the calls this scene out as one hundred percent supernatural moment, whether um, whether the rest of the book is or not. Um, you know th- this goes outside of just simple uh, masking memories. Now this scene is interesting because I mean Margaret does not physically help Laura out of her house or anything even though uh, Laura does allude to telling her things. Um, you know, per Maya from Manners and Madness, she basically thinks, you know, it, it rubs her the wrong way that the log lady knows what's going on yet does nothing um, in, in a worldly perspective. Um, and, you know, I do tend to agree with that because it is frightening. You know, it's like, why, why is there this big disconnect 
between between Laura essentially asking for help and um and Margaret not providing the help. Um but you know Mar- Margaret does end up giving Laura a life raft, but it's this really small thing. Um and Margaret really does look away when uh when Laura tells her that things happen in the woods. And um yeah, so I mean I feel like Margaret's, you know, in part, you know, a human can only deal with so much. Um but in this case, you know, she's following the uh the message that she got from her own dream about what they're supposed to talk about, probably. Um, you know, she basically cues Laura to be on this path. You know, it's it's up to Laura to choose a path at this point. And, you know, it's it's more of a universal outlook. It's about it's about the quality of Laura's soul rather than of her body. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Margaret does give great advice in the final dossier about, you know, hold on to your light, grow your light. Um, you know, the, the darkness will end that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's kind of the same advice that she's giving to Laura here. Um, Honestly, the the frequency does hold, you know, this, this light that Laura is feeling this, this positivity, um, it even maintains through Laura writing the diary entry hours later. Yeah, I, I feel like the help that that Margaret gave Laura in this instance was to keep Laura's light lit. You know, it was less about involving law enforcement or taking her out of her home or whatever. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's tough to to put log lady's culpability in this. I mean, uh, b- but then, you know, there, there's this other thing, you know, like where nobody in town understood who Margaret was. I mean, like where, where she lived. I mean, um, you know, it's like the, the Hawk didn't even know. Harry didn't even know. Like nobody knew whose cabin it was the, that Margaret was staying in. So like, again, I, I wondered then, and I wonder now is, is Margaret actually connected to reality? Or is she on a different frequency that's a little bit higher than the normal stuff or the mundane stuff or the, you know, the muggle stuff or whatever word you want to use for it. Um, But there were a lot of wonderful things in there. And there were a lot of warnings about, you know, these are the things you watch for in the woods. The woods, you can go camping in the woods, but sometimes you learn a little bit too much. And, um, um, you know, she'll say things like children are sometimes prey, uh, owls are sometimes big, you know, things like that. So, I mean, I feel like it was almost like a, a language tutoring session that, that Laura will do for Josie later on. You know, it's like, uh, Margaret was giving her the language of the woods so that she can navigate it a little more safely. And from that point forward, she left it up to Laura to shovel her own shit to to paraphrase uh the worldly messenger <laughs> later on of of margaret's message i know there's a lot more to talk about but i've been talking a while and i feel like the only thing left to talk about is the um the whodunit aspects of this book i mean because because it really is supposed to you know aside from all the spiritual stuff that it was dealing with i mean one of its one of its story point goals for the main series was to um, make us feel a little more suspicious of people um, as far as like maybe they could be the killers or um, 
you know, maybe it rules out some people. So, um, yeah, I mean, what, what, where, where do we leave these characters? Um, I mean, it kind of, it, it softens Leo a bit. If he did do it, it'd probably be more by accident and not, you know, by not paying attention to Laura's state of being. Um, you know, though, even if he did it, he probably wouldn't care much, which, you know, matches Leo of season one. Um, the same, same qualifiers with Jacques. Um, <clears throat> you know, Josie, like maybe, you know, she could have killed Laura out of, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing why, um, Eckert would want Harry dead, um, sexual jealousy. Um, then, you know, Harold could, could have done it because he was assaulted by Laura and, um, you know, I mean, he's messed up from it, obviously. Uh, even, even in this diary, we, we know that he's kind of like unhinged. So like maybe he could have done it, uh, when, when Laura was dropping off the diary. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to go with that. Um, and you know, Ben Horn obviously is the most, um, the most suspicious one you know i uh, someday i'm going to tell the world about ben horn um you know he he went from a secret horse supplier to a sexual partner uh before the end of this and um yeah and uh you know friend of the family friend of your father's uh, that that kind of thing um anyone at one eye jacks could have had the vendetta um you know, Jacoby, he knows so much about her. And, um, you know, did he finally get pushed too far uh, from jealousy or anything? Or um, did he let his attraction take on too much? Um, he could have done it. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, I, well, uh, Audrey, you know, maybe she's jealous of how um, she keeps getting closer and closer to her father. As I said in um, the, the season one finale episode, I mean, you know, she... Um, she wanted the attention that Laura got from her father, except she didn't know what kind of attention it fully went into. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe Audrey's that much of a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> there's uh, there's all sorts of ways. And then of course, Sarah and Leland could both be um, because of their absence. You know, there, that, that could be the tip off that it could be them or one of them. Um, I feel like the book essentially rules out Bobby. Um, but you know, I mean, per, uh, what, what was it? The, the first episode or the pilot, um, you know, he types in that little, um, that word, that word typing thing, um, uh, and shows it to Harry, uh, he didn't do it. So, you know, Cooper already ruled him out anyway. Um, and you know, same thing for Donna and James, but you know, yeah, I mean, the show basically says that they didn't do it. And, um, this book just reinforces that. Now, you'll probably notice that I haven't been talking too much about multiple timelines or anything like that this episode, even though that's kind of my pet thing um, with like multiple frequencies. Um, I think, um, you know, whether whether you believe in multiple timelines, whether you believe in the multiple frequencies, um, if Cooper goes back in time, absolutely nothing changes in this book uh i'm gonna i'm gonna finish up with um with something on this subject from my um from my article on the audiobook uh it, oh yeah <laughs> it's titled cheryl lee voices trauma in the secret diary of laura palmer audiobook 
and it gets in your head no matter how you look away. I love Twin Peaks with all my heart. It was foundational and hit me at the right time to embed itself in the language of existential questions a preteen begins instinctively exploring. Twin Peaks and growing up will always be tied together for me. But I swear to God I will always get uncomfortable on Twin Peaks Day because I will never forget that a girl was gaslighted and abused and forced to make a choice to die. I will never forget that the trauma-laced life and death of Laura Palmer is the major foundation of Twin Peaks, even more so than the character of Dale Cooper. Most people look away from this fact, show the white of their eyes, and drink full, but I can't. Trauma isn't removable. There is only navigating through it, one second at a time. It's not easy, it takes longer than is comfortable, but it will end. Timelines can't forget trauma, and this book and audiobook will never let you forget either. Fire Walk With Me is an incredibly rough movie that puts Cheryl Lee's skill to the test as we watch her go through hell as Laura. And even if you think there's divergent timelines, all but the last major scenes after she got off James's bike still happen to Laura Palmer. By that logic, absolutely every page of The Secret Diary happened, whether or not Dale Cooper changed the true past. Bob was progressively more and more present in Laura's life. Her struggles to do good versus being bad, and the heartbreaking effects of her abuse by either Bob or Leland is unchanged. Laura suffered badly through no fault of her own, whether Dale Cooper went back to the past or not. In canon, if you're one of those people, this book is completely unchanged by anything that happened in the modern incarnation of Twin Peaks. And this book is the most difficult goddamn thing of all of them. This puts you in the head of a girl who cannot forget her abuse no matter how much buy-in coffee you put in front of her. And if that doesn't sum up in a nutshell kind of how I, how I feel about approaching this book, I don't know what will. Um, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I, can't, um, I can't imagine actually going through something like this um, with or without Supernatural. You know, it's, it's just... Uh, but we made it through it. We made it all the way through this book finally. Um, yeah, next week we're well. Next time, anyway. I know this one had a little bit more delays than I was expecting for various reasons. So, um, next time we're gonna finally go back into season two and uh, get this thing rolling again. At this point, all that's left to say is the sign-off. So, you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and at Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Retro Futurist Culture. Find any number of classic 25YL articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessiveRadio.com. 
And if you want to be part of our monthly mailbag episodes, send your comments, questions, and feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we cover episode eight, the ninth overall episode of Twin Peaks, and the first episode of Twin Peaks season two. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand, deepen the universe that the show takes place in.